Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... The Iron List! Cough. My name is William Damiani. <laughs> I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, and there's... Oh, Ooh, my fireworks. goodness. There's fireworks outside the apartment. My name People is Whitney Seibold. We're celebrating! Seibold. We're doing the Iron List! <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, and uh, we're talking about books. Yeah, we are, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, every month on the Iron List, we invite our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network to vote for a best of list that we are going to present to you. These are a list of movies that we think are the best of a particular category. Whitney does a list. I do a list. Sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes there's not. Uh, and this time, you know, we, 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 we like to put a variety of different topics on there and you know, we usually think people are going to, like, skew towards something that's, you know, kind of salacious and cool. Uh, this time, y- y'all went really classy. And you <laughs> picked the best... Stop it. You went, You picked the best classic literature adaptations, which implies to me that you're trying to get your summer reading list done. And you <laughs> want to know which movies are the closest to the book, which uh, I will say... Uh, uh, um, well, not a lot of them, actually. You should probably read the book. <laughs> Some of them are faithful than others, but you should, you, should, you should read the book. Um, you should read the book and also watch the movie. Oh, sure. See how the material has been handled by a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But if the assignment is, re- is to read Romeo and Juliet, you don't get to watch Romeo and Juliet. No. And feel like you've done the correct thing. I uh, I was working on this top ten list. I was trying to, you know, mm-hmm. think of all... Because the, the fact is... Book adaptations have been around since pretty much the beginning of cinema, like right at the start of the silent era. Uh, so there was a lot to choose from, and yeah. narrowing it down was actually really tricky. And I asked uh, my wife and partner, M. Lapis da Silva, what her some, some of her favorites were. Maybe jog my memory, or like, oh, I forgot about that one. And she had the most fascinating point to make, which is basically, and I'm going to butcher this. I was hoping she'd be, she'd be around when we recorded. Um... But um, the problem with classic literature adaptations is that the books were written before the concept of cinema in a lot of cases. Yes. And as a result, adapting them is basically a betrayal of the material because the material wasn't designed to be uh, uh, reduced to the cinematic art form. It wasn't and the a... cinematic art form is doing them a disservice and kind of doing cinema a disservice, which was an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. Uh... Novels and cinema are a different media, aren't they? And, Very much so. And they are t- tell stories in different sorts of ways. You could argue that theater is a little bit more fair game yeah. when it comes to an adaptation to cinema because they deal with chronology in similar ways. Also, they're already being uh, staged. They're, yeah, they're presentational. They need, they need actors, They're, they're concerned with um, what can and cannot be shown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So f- theater is a little bit more uh, closer akin to cinema than Novels. Agreed. Uh, uh, so, and novels, I just feel, yeah. you know, there's some there are some books which are in, notoriously difficult to mm. even conceive of adapting, mm. and then there are other novels, and many of them I feel like were written in the last century, which feel a bit more cinematic because well, I feel like people are watching movies, and that is changing the way we think of stories. Yeah, in some my cases. Uh, my dad actually pointed this out to me once when I was young. Mm. He got uh, he's a big fan of, of detective novels. Yeah, he, he's uh, very much a man in that regard. He's he likes dad literature, hard boiled. Yeah, he, he really likes hard boiled dude literature. <laughs> he said like the the filthier and grimier it is, the better. And you know, which is weird because he's like pretty a, like a straight laced button down engineer. Otherwise, I, I kind of want to do like a direct like a low budget like horror like a 
like the mystery movie called Hard Boiled Dudes. Hard Boiled Dudes. Yeah, it's all set on a beach but, uh, somewhere. But he he point he showed me some uh, older detective novels that he had read compared to with a brand new one, which was mm. uh, like the early '90s at the time. Yeah, and he pointed out how the language was different. Mm. How. Uh, the older books were much more about the experience and the characters, uh, odors, uh, that sort of thing, where newer books are much more visually oriented because yeah. they're taking a lot of their film, their cues from film. Exactly. And uh, so he, he pointed out, it's like, and he he was standing on, on a hill and the, the, the scene he was showing is like he was silhouetted by the sun behind him. Yeah. As if he were being photographed. Exactly. You know, a single beam of light hit him on the face, illuminating his eye as if he was being photographed. Exactly, yes. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think a lot of, and indeed you look at to some authors and you can see them thinking of film. Um, I, I mm. never finished it, but I started to read the very first Harry Potter novel mm. and that was an incredibly visual book. Very that was, much that so. Was, you know, totally. Ca- that kind totally feels like screen. a, like an outline for a um, movie. Yeah. The first time I really noticed this was when I was reading, uh, John Grisham mm. and how much he was clearly thinking of these as cinema thrillers rather than necessarily novels. Um, but yeah, as as the medias have sort of grown together, uh, writing has changed. Uh, a lot of the books on my list were written before the inception, or at least the popularization of cinema. Yeah. Um, some of them were written after, yeah. but uh, I think they still count as classic lit. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Whitney and I come up with our lists for the mm-hmm. Iron List totally separately. Yeah. We don't talk it out. We don't come up with uh, consistent ground rules. He has his own criteria. I have mine. Mm. I'll explain my criteria here. In order to figure out what are the best classic lit movies, I think you first have to decide what classic lit is. Uh-huh. And for me, there's an important distinction here. I'm not necessarily looking at movies based on literature that is considered classic now. Mm. For me, what was important was to pick movies that were adapting literature which were considered classic at the time. Okay, because I think that's a different thing. If you're if you're uh, adapting a contemporary okay. novel, uh-huh. I think you have a lot more freedom, and okay. I uh, I feel like if you're adapting something that has history to it, a couple of generations have read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there is a different tone. Like where there's I think there's often more reverence. Okay. Um, you, um, you you can still play with the material, and people often do, but I feel like it's you know a bit more about like. Uh, we're finally adapting this classic novel. We're readapting this classic novel, as opposed to it's a bestseller and now it's a film. Like I feel like that's just yeah. a different vibe. Um, Is that I, relevant? Maybe not, but that was yeah, important I, to me. So I, I didn't. I didn't make that distinction. Okay. Uh, there are some uh, classic books based on classic novels that were contemporary when the films were made. Yeah. So I didn't b- abide by that rule. There's a, and that totally makes yeah. sense. I just did that for my own sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It narrowed the list down a little bit. Um, as a result, the I, I'm not a, I, I didn't do the math, but I'm pretty sure that like none of the movies on my list are m- less than like 25 to 30 years after the book was published. Okay. Uh, so the book the book had time to sort of become classic lit mm. by that point. Is my is my deal? It wasn't okay. like a new and popular thing that could fade. It had some staying power. That's fair. Um, the majority of mine are I think from the 1800s. Uh, there's a considered f- the age of the novel. Sure. Uh, and and uh, there's a few from um, the early 20th century, but I think the latest one is like the late 1930s. So okay. that's that's that was that wasn't a specific not, not cutoff a lot of that I had. Century novels. No, 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 no. A few, but no, uh, not mostly. Yeah. What about you? What about your criteria? Um, I had I had to have read it. That was my criteria. Oh. Um, and you know, there's a lot of classic uh, classic books uh, that I haven't read yet. 
Sure. Um, like, I really wanted to include Little Women. I actually haven't read Little Women, so uh, that that's a big gap in my literary education. So um, fair enough. So I, I couldn't include any of Little Women, even though I've I've seen a couple of those and I like them. Uh, I especially like Greta Gerwig's edition uh, version of it, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Greta Gerwig's edition she, <laughs> she re-edited it. I don't well, know. She kind of did actually. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah. No, I, I really love Greta Gerwig's version of Little Women, but I I disqualified it on that I couldn't include it. I also you can uh, compare and contrast them. Yeah. I disqualified Shakespeare because uh, a we've done that list already, and I could populate just do that list again. Yeah. I disqualified uh, theater. Just all theater. All um, theater. I feel I, like that's a slightly different beast. Uh, certainly. I wanted to, but there is one play. On that's fine. List, so. uh, I also disqualified, although there, one of them came very close to my top ten anyway. Like I felt like I needed to make an exception for it. Mm. But I disqualified any adaptations of classic literature that changed uh, the time period. Oh, you don't you don't count like out of like updates. I didn't feel like, like, it, like I didn't feel like it doesn't count. For that, as a, Clueless was the, uh, spoiler alert. Clueless uh, was the one that almost made my top ten list. Okay, uh, it's it, that's an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, but it's set in the nineteen nineties in Beverly Hills. Uh, that's a great movie. I think it's a great adaptation of Emma, but I also feel like it's not still not Emma. Okay, so you, kind of you way, want it like, as, like as as quote straight an adaptation, kind of yeah. So. And I realize that there's that I'm leaving some really good films out there, films mm-hmm. that I really, 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 really mm-hmm. like in some cases. But I felt um, you know we're going for what's actually trying to capture the book, okay, in a, in a more direct way, or mm-hmm. or the short story, or whatever the original version is. Mm-hmm. But it couldn't be theater. It couldn't have come dramatically updated like the timeline or anything like that. I don't mind some anachronisms, mm-hmm. but you know, um, and I thought there needed to be. The book needed to be considered a classic when it was adapted. All right, that was that was my only major okay, criteria. Yeah. Um, I wanted to excise all theater, but I admit I did include one play. Okay. Um, but yeah, no Shakespeare. Yeah, I have to have read it, and uh, e- even if I've read the literature and I there's a movie of it that I feel is just not all that interesting, that yeah. I couldn't include it, or maybe I haven't seen the movies based on it. Right. Um, I really love Dostoevsky. I haven't seen a great Dostoevsky movie, though. Neither have I. Um, I love Moby Dick. I haven't seen a great Moby Dick movie. Yeah. Uh, the, especially because I read the book before I went, you know, even close to any of the movies. Yeah. So I, it's it, they're going to pale in comparison. I did not have that distinction. I didn't feel like it was... Because the, the simple fact is... Uh, I don't have as much time to read as I used to. And there's a lot of classic lit that I simply haven't gotten around to. And I feel as though it's you're going to your list is probably going to be more in-depth and interesting because you you're only comparing and contrasting the original and the adaptation. Mm. Uh, whereas I'm going with a, here's the movie. The movie that they got out of it, however faithful okay. it might have been. I tried to avoid something that I had heard was spectacularly unfaithful. But usually, mm. usually in that case, I find the movie often suffers for it. Um, like uh, like that terrible uh, Gary Oldman to me more version of the Scarlet Letter where they change the ending. Oh, I, I, actually, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I've heard, like, I haven't read the book either, they, so I can't I, really... Uh, I actually have read the book. It was, but, like, that was they, one of those they, ones I managed to avoid in high school. They totally, they totally gave it the Hollywood ending and it's like, it's mm. so bad. Uh, so uh, generally speaking, that's often a mistake. Anyway, so. <laughs> the Scarlet Letter stands for A. <laughs> Um, all right. Any other thing else we need to cover before we get going? Uh, I suppose not. Um, okay. And I think I'll start if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. Um, I'm going to start with just an obvious one, just to get it out of the way, sure. uh, and just let you know it's not number one on my list because you know it, but it's The Wizard of Oz. Um, okay. Uh, not not that it's bad. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I've read uh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, as written by uh, L. Frank Baum. Um, I. I 
it, it was a little upsetting that we never got a Wizard of Oz adaptation that looks like the W.W. Denslow illustrations from the original edition. Mm-hmm. But the original uh, Wizard of Oz was written in 1900, uh, was published in 1900. Uh, mm. The movie version I'm referring to came out in 1939, although there was uh, at least one film version that predates that. Yeah. Uh, it is wildly inaccurate to, <laughs> to the, the book. Uh, there's yeah. the change. Completely a lot. unfaithful yeah. in every way, yeah. Um, but both are such enchanting experiences that I, I can't. Uh, can't fault the movie for being uh, unfaithful. The book is actually, uh, even though it takes place in this really wild, crazy land, it feels like it's really surreal, um, but it feels very comparatively a lot more mannered. Not in the same way like Alice in Wonderland is mannered, but I feel like uh, L. Frank Baum was taking us through a a much more episodic narrative because he, he was writing for children. Uh, it was trying to write, and this was sort of right when what we came to uh, view as children's literature was kind of being born. Uh, it was yeah, kind of I- a relatively novel uh, invention. The idea of literature that was written for children to enjoy. To, and well, not, to, and to not, read themselves. Well, that's the point. Yeah. To enjoy and not uh, uh, not children's literature that only existed to teach them things mm-hmm. like a parable of some kind is a very it's recent a really, adventure. really really like uh, turn of the 20th century like, yeah like, recent w- like the wizard of oz winnie the pooh like yeah. th- those are kind of where uh, a lot of yeah. and, and peter pan a lot well, of that, that's uh, kind robert of robert louis I stevenson was, was kind of in there with like the treasure mm. island he was at the forefront of yeah. it but like yeah there was i i took a class in children's lit in uh, college once and um they started us out by looking at here's what children's literature used to be before we started caring what children might like, and uh, there was some horrifying tales. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just like, okay, you oh, are my son and daughter fighting? Well, come out to the woods and oh, look, here's a flayed couple of people. These were also <laughs> siblings yeah, who yeah. fought. I'm going to tell you the horrible story about how they got flayed alive, and I'm like, the fuck is this shit? horrifying it, if you if you uh, sort of analyze the history of like fairy tales as yeah. we, you know the kind of stuff disney animated fair tends to to bank on uh, a lot of those are morality plays and they're meant to sort of scare children into behaving well um also if you consider that uh a lot of these stories were being told to if if you sort of look at the history of like um mm. when these stories were being written in europe You'll know that a lot of these stories were being written by, were being told rather by grandparents and passed yeah. down by grandparents, and so you'll find that, um, you know, putting putting fear into the kids involving like old crones yeah. is kind of giving power to the storyteller, and there's also a lot of punishment of young couples going on, yeah. uh, and so there's there's this kind of uh, weird history of, of familial resentment mm. that's baked into the, into these old fairy tales. I'm but, curious, um, did you did you consider fairy tales to be classic lit? Did you have any fairy tales adaptations uh, um, in there? Uh, no, well, I mean, I guess not because that's not that's that's like folk tales. That's a different thing. Uh, than, yeah, than, uh, I, I than toyed literature. with it. There's a couple I seriously considered like if, putting if, on. If you there, can, yeah. if you want to relate it to a tale by the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen, yeah. then. That by all means go to you know knock yourself mm. out, but um, I I didn't go that route. But I, uh, I, I I was debating whether or not to put Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Okay, because uh, that actually is kind of based off of the French version. It's based on a, I, on a specific yeah, novel, I, so you I, could I do it. But the, uh, I, I don't know why it is I didn't based do on a, it's, an it's older folk though. tale. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so when it comes to, to children's literature, a lot of it was was really really scary because a lot of it was this sort of vengeful trying to like sell these you know 
put resentment of their parents into the heads of kids by the grandmothers. Right. And uh, as such, I, I think both the, the book, The Wizard of Oz, and the movie, The Wizard of Oz, contain that element of terror that I really appreciate. I, I feel like there's there's a lot, of, a lot more monsters and death and just mind fuckery going on in, yeah. in the original Wizard of Oz. Well, I, I've never read the book, but the movie's amazing. And I know about, I know, I've read a lot about the various enormous liberties that they took oh. with the material. Like, um, and I think like Glinda and the Witch of the North are two different characters. Yeah, and it wasn't yeah. all a dream, which yeah. is mm. kind of a big one if you think about it. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, that's just practically a whole betrayal right there, mm. but it's such a well-told story. It's hard to be mad at it, which is just sort of evidence that, you know, when it comes to adaptation, faithfulness is not everything. No. It's no, really no. not. It's about, more often than not, it's about capturing the spirit and the tone and... Uh, yeah, I think it's more than anything else. Those are those are the two things. Uh, you can you can futz with the plot, you can futz with the characters a little bit, but it's kind of got to feel like you're visiting the same place. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. and and a, a bit of a personal note. Uh, my my grandmother, mm. uh, one of the uh, one of her prized possessions was a collection of all of the original editions of all the original Oz books. Wow. Um, those are probably worth a lot of money right uh, now. I, th- I think so. I think my uh, I think my aunt uh, ended up getting them when my grandmother passed. But uh, on Sundays, my mom would drop us off at grandma's house, and we'd spend mm-hmm. the day with grandma, and she would read to us from Oz books. So I've I remember being a young child and listening to my grandmother read us all of the Oz books. So that they the books mean something to me personally as well. Nice. Uh, in addition to me just adoring the movie and growing up watching it over and over again. That's nice. Probably seen The Wizard of Oz like a hundred times. Yeah. Well, as, as I've said before, I wasn't allowed to watch The Wizard of Oz because my mom wouldn't have it in the house. Just because it was too scary? The Flying Monkeys. The Flying really? Monkeys freaked her out. And they were just mm-hmm. one of those things where it's just like, you know what? You can watch Wizard of Oz when you get your own house. Yeah. And so that I, I didn't see it until I was like 18. Uh, but it's quite good. Mm-hmm. I got nothing against it. I just didn't grow up with it the way some people did. Okay. So I don't have quite that like deep connection to it some people do. Mm-hmm. I actually have a deeper connection to Return to Oz, which made my runners up. Oh, yeah. uh, which I which think is just was, an incredibly creepy, wonderful film. Uh, it, that, that one's also pl- plenty scary. That's just yeah. a hard, straight up horror. There's movie. a pull of yeah. severed fucking heads in it. Like Jesus. <laughs> they all come to life and start screaming. Yeah, yeah. it's terrifying. Uh, speaking of horror, let's uh, go to my number ten. And again, uh, uh, the way we do our lists, um, it, num- numerical order doesn't matter. We have our number ones, and we're, we just that's important to us. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter what's number ten or number seven. They're all important recommendations. So don't read anything into the fact that this is number ten. Um. Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Uh, one of the most influential authors in the Western canon. Uh, helped develop the horror genre as we know it today. Uh, helped inspire some of the detective genre as we know it today. Weird fiction, as you yeah. call it. Uh, I, I grew up reading a lot of Poe. Mm. I love Edgar Allan Poe. He's, he's, his gloomy heart is close to mine in some regards. <laughs> and in other ways, he was kind of a weird, creepy dude. But... Um, there well, been, there well, been, noted raging alcoholic. Well, that, in fact, yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, it, it's been so, it's been posited that he had like some weird allergy that like strengthened the effect of alcohol. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Like he would only drink a little, and that would just sort of send him off on these benders, and yeah. ended up dying on a park bench. Yeah, the uh, uh, there's no shortage of actually really good Poe adaptations, especially in the 1960s. There was this whole wave mm-hmm. of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, mostly directed by uh, Roger Corman. Mm. Roger Corman is not typically considered to be a great filmmaker, but for whatever reason, if you give him a Poe story, 
he usually does a really good job. And I think he did multiple really rock-solid adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe. And I actually struggled a little bit to decide which one to put on my list. Uh, I came very close to picking The Pit and the Pendulum, which is just wonderful gothic melodrama. He really just took that very simple story and expanded it into this delightfully weird tale of betrayal and murder and combine mm -hmm. and often his, uh, the movies combine multiple Edgar Allan Poe stories in order to pad it out a little bit. Yeah. Um but in the end I actually think the one that like has aged the best, the one that is in many respects the most stylish, the one that feels like it's the most focused is The Mask of the Red Death from 1964. Okay. Have you seen this one? Yeah, I have. Uh, I love this movie. I think this movie is really, really amazing. I think it's Roger Corman's best looking movie. It was uh, uh, director of photography was Nicholas Rogue, who would go on to direct films like Performance and Walkabout and Don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth and The Witches. Um, but the the plot of The Mask of the Red Death, if you're unfamiliar with it, is there's a plague, and uh, all and, the rich and, people. And yeah. I, I think the time period is like a little. A little shoot nebulous. in the story, a little but, but it's like medieval times. It, the implication is that it's medieval times, but yeah. because it's so isolated, it kind of doesn't matter. And the idea is there's a plague, mm. and all of the, the wealthy the, and powerful, the, the Red Death, yeah, and all of the wealthy and powerful have decided to hole up, you know, to quarantine themselves and live in absolute debauchery and just wait it out. Mm. The poor will die, and when everyone is dead, we'll be able to emerge and we'll be fine. Uh, Vincent Price, of course, uh, plays the leader of this uh, cabal of rich assholes, and he has got this whole scheme to like seduce a young woman, and he's super creepy. Uh, they combine this, I think, I think it's a clever combination here because they're thematically linked. Uh, they combine the story Hop Frog. Mm. Uh, which is a really disturbing and creepy story about uh, a court jester who gets uh, his revenge yeah, bloody, on the bloody revenge on the uh, I think it's the king actually who yeah. like who mm. who humiliates him in a really gruesome way. Um, but um, there's a beautiful poetry I think to the Mask of the Red Death because in the end the Red Death comes for them and it's such a glorious the way that they just present it and just this sort of like almost Stentarian or Centurion like uh, way just all of a sudden death is here mm. and it's red <laughs> and we're all fucked like like death the personification of death yeah. attends the party it's yeah. so fucking beautiful there's something mm. just really just classically haunting about it and I mm. think it's uh, I think it captures the original story which I have read I think it I think the combination of Hop Frog makes a lot of sense better than some of the other combinations that they did um it's again it's lovely it's beautifully mm. photographed Vincent Price always great marriage with this material uh, and this is a this is a story I think a lot of people have been thinking a lot about in the last year or so <laughs> about how well, when the chips are down and like we're all gonna die from some horrible plague or pestilence, um, certain people seem a little less affected, don't they? Certain people are like oh 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 you're all quarantining in your studio apartments and like desperately trying to make do. Okay, I'll be in the Bahamas on my yacht, mm. and we're just like, uh huh. I remember great uh, for you. Yeah, a, a lot of celebrities were like, "Oh well, I'm not working right now, so I'll just show them." Yeah, we're just we're hunkering down too in place. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger said, "Here, I'm just here in my hot tub smoking a stogie." It's like, right? Because that's what we're all doing. With yeah, our private hot tubs, we're really Cuban stogies. Yeah, we're we're really uh, we're it, it became. If you weren't hyper aware mm. of the class divides inherent in the American system, mm. I think you are now. <laughs> Remember when all the celebrities got to... What did they sing? Let It Be? Or, no, it was... Um, oh, more fireworks more, there. Big one there, too. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Imagine. 
Imagine, it was Imagine. It was Imagine. Remember all those yeah. celebrities saying Imagine? Yeah, like that was, was going to help us, us out. That was going to get us through somehow. Ooh, was that a miscalculation? <laughs> that was, that, boy, did you feel totally tone deaf. It, that it, was really, really, really bad. At least when Quibi did uh, Princess Bride, you know, that, that yeah. was a little bit more appropriate. Well, that was, that was a lark. Yeah. When you're doing Imagine, it feels like, oh yeah, we're you're really, really serious. Like we're helping yeah. you out. We're trying to remem- make you remember what John Lennon said. And I'm like, I don't know if you remember what everything John Lennon said, because he wasn't necessarily in full support of everything you guys are standing for. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, the master of the red death, it's my favorite Poe adaptation. Although mm. pit in the pendulum is close. And I'm a big fan of Tumul Ijea, but I haven't mm. seen it recently enough. Theoretically, it could replace yeah, this if um, I watched it and liked it as much as I remembered. Um, of that cycle, the one I watched the most as a kid and enjoyed the most was tales of terror. Mm. Uh, which is a, a triptych. It was three stories, you know, the, but the one with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre, uh, mm-hmm. where they, they're Peter Lorre is the, uh, the drunk and they have a drink off. Yeah. It's, it's based vaguely on the cask of Amontillado. Um, yeah. that uh, that's, that's one of my favorites. Nice. All right. What's your next pick? Uh, let's see here. Um, let's see, what are we going to go with? I guess with horror, um, a book I became really, really familiar with and a movie I really, really love is uh, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Oh, there you go. That's um, great. That's a good yeah. But again, the film was made in 1973 and the bu- book was published in 71. So but it was just a contemporary adaptation. It's your time. rules, not mine. Yeah. My, I, I would disqualify it because at the time it wasn't considered a classic, mm-hmm. but... It is considered a classic it's now. It's considered, and, yeah. And it's actually a pretty faithful adaptation of that it's, book. I've read that book. It's really, really close. The, the yeah. only really, like, it's, it's not really a difference, but the, the mm. notable uh, part of the book that is sort of left out of the movie is how much time uh, Father Karras, the, the Damien Karras character, spends uh, trying to figure out whether or not this, uh, uh, this little girl is actually possessed. Yeah. Uh, and indeed... They go into detail about what the Catholic Church, like the Catholic Church, is all very rule oriented. It's a very dogmatic religion, yeah. Uh, and so there's this whole list of things that need to, yeah. like a checklist that he needs to go through to prove that this is a real exorcism. Yeah, so, the exorcist book is almost like yeah. a procedural at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. he's going through. It's like, well, all of a sudden, this young girl who's never spoken Latin before is speaking Latin. Well, if she, if the you find a single book that has any Latin words in it in the house. She could just be exceptionally bright and could be faking it. So that's that's nothing. Yeah, that means nothing. Yeah. yeah if you 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 uh, what you know draw on her stomach with your finger and the words rise up out of her skin. Well, there's like medical conditions that can can do that. And even if things are floating through the air, well, there's actually like some documented cases of psychokinesis. So that's not necessarily a demon. There's a lot yeah. of lot of these little details that uh, they just sort of skim through in the movie. But yeah, uh, for the most part, it's pretty. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. As a uh, book, a it feels of, pretty yeah. cinematic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a fun fact. Uh, William Peter Blatty uh, went on Groucho Marx's game show oh, yeah, um, before he became uh, a, a novelist. You, you, and he, you bet your life. And uh, he used his winnings to take time off and write The Exorcist. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that. Groucho was indirectly responsible for The Exorcist. Yeah, There's something kind of beautiful about that. Uh, you, you've probably seen The Exorcist. Uh, when when the movie was re-released in 2000, this curious thing happened where a lot of uh, younger people, people my age, yeah. were going to see it for the first time. Yeah, in theaters. And yeah, yeah and they had heard its reputation. It's so, so scary. And people were like laughing in the theater and people yeah. were falling asleep because it's, it's a really quiet movie. It's really slow moving for a lot it's of It's a it. mature motion picture. Yeah, it's yeah, not it's trying a... to excite you in the most ways. It's actually a drama that you 
gradually realizes yeah, and, a war and, movie. And, yeah. and it's also one of those movies that engages with uh, ideas of faith and faithlessness and, you know, the, the role of the church in yeah. the world and the role of evil in the world. And those are things you're not thinking about when you're like 19 years old too much. Yeah. Or at least not in the same way that the, the movie is trying to come at you with. I think so much of our media today, whether it's books, movies, mm-hmm. comics, video games, whatever it is, so much of it is specifically targeted at mm. a young audience, whether that's mm. teenagers or 20-somethings. Yeah, that, start, that, that started in the 50s. True. Yeah, or but, teen were seen as a demographic. But that, but that was like a demographic, one of many. And you realize that when you look at like what were blockbusters like in like the 70s, a lot of them were movies for adults. Like The Godfather was a blockbuster. Mm. Nowadays, that would probably not crack $500 million at the box office. But mm. at the time, it was like one of the most successful movies ever made. Um, so nowadays, so many movies are catered at that, like PG 13 audience. So we're going to try to make sure that we appeal to young demographics. Whitest possible audience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, there's also something really insulting about that. The whitest possible audience must Mm. be young. That's actually a very small well, fraction of the human experience. Well, uh, you know? appropriate for young, but also appealing to older people. But that's the point. Is it's always, both, yeah. but I feel like it's always the young will like it and the old will enjoy it. Mm. Whereas I feel like there used to be more movies, big movies, that were intended for older people. Mm. Like, and, and the kid, but the kids will come along, hopefully. Yeah. But like your movies that are just like this is a movie about what it's like to be forty. Mm. That's kind of more important to like this movie. And mm. if you're in your 20s, you'll appreciate it, but you won't really get it until later on in life. And I feel like Exorcist is one of those stories where uh, theoretically you're, you know, you're sympathizing with uh, little Regan, mm. uh, who is uh, you know, possessed by a demon. But it's not from her perspective. It's from her mom's perspective. It's about yeah, the story mm-hmm. of a mother and a story of a priest who's been, he's not a young priest. He's youngish, but he's not like just getting started. Mm. And he's been around long enough to lose his faith. Yeah, she, and so these are stories. This is a story about sort of a middle-aged kind mm. of perspective on life. You think you've seen it all, and then all of a sudden something comes along and changes your perspective on everything. Yeah, and, That's and, not and, something twenty-somethings are really, you know, mm. directly connected with. And, and what the thing about the Exorcist is, it's not in an uplifting sort of way. No. Your perspective is being changed, and you hate that. And yeah. uh, this is about a priest who's sort of kind of come to peace with his faithlessness. One gets like the impression he's, he's ready to leave the church. He's, he's, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he is getting ready to leave. Yeah. And uh, and then he's confronted with it, with this evil, with this devil. Yeah. And But it's not like reinforcing his faith in a positive sort of way. Yeah. Okay, you've, you've proved the devil is real. That's not comforting. Yeah. That there's actually evil in the world. I'm not seeing any proof of God yeah. per se, but the devil gets to like perform anti-miracles. The fuck is this shit? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there's, a, there's a lot of uh, darkness, a lot of maturity in both the book and the movie. Um, yeah. The book and the movie are really close. So it's actually yeah, kind of safe to sell them together. I think uh, so. it, it's the same with like 2001, a space odyssey. Yeah. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke was writing that book and the screenplay at the same time. Yeah. So they were informing each other. Yeah. If, um, you've, if you've seen the movie and you haven't read the book, the book is a great read. It's a fast read. Oh yeah. There's a lot of fun, extra like elements and characters that are a bit more fleshed out, but it's uh, basically uh, the, what you saw. Um, Kinderman, the, the cop character. Yeah. Gets a lot more to do in the book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's great. <laughs> One of my favorite, t- my favorite detail that's in the book and they never say it in the movie. Mm. At the beginning of the movie, Ellen Burstyn's character, it's Ellen Burstyn's mom, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ellen Burstyn's uh, character, she's Regan's mom, and she is in town in New England shooting a film. Mm. She's an actress. And they never say what the film is. In 
the book, it's a musical remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. That's right. <laughs> which is hilarious. In, in because the, you look at the scene in the movie and it's about this like weird It's like this kind of uprising. protest going on yeah. in the movie. What that the she's, fuck does the that movie? have to do with... What, what do you... What? I love that so much. Um... All right, well, uh, let's move on. Let's stay, let's stay in the genre realm. Because uh, I do have some, like, you know, dramas and I've, comedies. I've, but... one, I've one more horror book on my list. Yeah, I don't so... think I have any. I have I have a couple of films. I have a couple of sci-fi and fantasy films, but I don't have any more horror. Right. Um, but while we're on the subject of, uh, you know, what's not real. You know, fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever hear of this J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien guy? Uh, I read his book, The Hobbit. Yes, uh, which Hobbit movie? Uh, the Hobbit. Okay, the, yeah, the, that is the that is the Rankin Bass animated yeah, film. I, right? I, I, okay, so there have been quite a few adaptations of mm-hmm. uh, J.R. Tolkien's work. Now, uh, there was a Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings, which mm-hmm. was a theatrically released animated film, uh, which covered basically uh, basically the first two books. Like, really, really fast. Like, they they take most of the time in Fellowship of the Ring, and then they race through the Two Towers really, really quick. Um, it's actually quite good, and I like it a lot. But it's not a great adaptation because it's really, really rushed. Uh, there was the Rankin-Bass uh, The Hobbit, which we'll focus on in a minute. Uh, then there was the Rankin-Bass Return of the King, which basically finished the Ralph Bakshi story. Mm. It's quite respectable. I like it a lot. It's been a, I haven't seen... Um... Yeah. Lord of the Rings or Return of the King since I was little. Yeah. I, uh, Lord of the Rings holds up pretty good. As I said, it's too rushed, but, uh, and I haven't seen Return of the King in a while, but it's, it's pretty good for what mm-hmm. it is. It's, it's, it's certainly, if you've seen the animated Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you might as well see Return of the King and get the whole story. They, mm-hmm. they do a pretty good job considering how truncated it has to be. Uh, Peter Jackson did the, uh, I think very good and very respectable Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm. Uh, I would argue that the extended edition of Two Towers is better than the original, but otherwise I'd go with the theatrical. Uh, and I think Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies are huge misfires. Just a mistake from beginning to end, because yeah. uh, The Hobbit is a, a very simple episodic story. It yeah. was written to be that way. Yeah, it's a children's book. And uh, and it was meant to... Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien... This is the thing I don't like about The Lord of the Rings film adaptations from Peter Jackson. Yeah. Um, they glorify war. Mm. Combat is seen as something really grand and exciting, and that yeah. is a necessity in the world to put the correct power back in place. Uh Tolkien himself was a pacifist. Yeah, he was in World War One. Uh, yeah. He saw how horrible it was, and he hated it. Yeah, so he yeah. he actually wrote The Hobbit specifically uh, to show sort of the the foolishness of of war. Yeah, uh, it's and, about it's and, about and someone the, who yeah. is dragged along onto an adventure who doesn't want adventure, who doesn't want violence, and ends up being as someone who is a pacifist, mm. uh, someone who would only resort to violence in a most extreme situation. Uh, and he and never it, does. Yeah, but, kind of, he kind of he pulls a sword on a giant spider, a, but that's about oh, yeah, as close yeah, as it gets. I guess so. You know, he's, like, but that's but that's in a really extreme situation. He's, he's, he's violent to a spider. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, he's he's a dramatic counterpoint. It's actually kind of a meta text in some way. It's a dramatic counterpoint mm. to a conventional sort of fantasy adventure concept, um, which tend to be based in. Uh, Medieval literature like Le Mort d'Artur yeah. and other knight, stories of knights errantry, yeah. which means combat and war, are typically depicted as something very noble. Yeah, The Hobbit is a wonderful book. It's a quick read. It's an excellent read. It is wonderfully subversive. It is exactly the kind of adventure story you need, but it's also a comment on why that's bad. Mm. And I love that. Lord of the Rings is the books. 
I'll admit it, I've never gotten through all of them for okay. a couple of reasons. One, I think they're paced really badly, but uh, I, <laughs> I've, I, I've heard they're notoriously slow, but I haven't. They're read really, the really slow, and I and I and that's one of the things I like about Peter Jackson's movies is I think they cut the filler. <laughs> I think it's they just, just the action. It's well, it's mostly the action, yeah. and they, they they know when to take a moment, but mm-hmm. like they're not like wasting our time either. Mm-hmm. They understand that the story needs to progress because there's a lot of it. Who, who um, is who is like. Like a, there's a character that I know Peter Jackson notoriously cut out that everybody really. Oh, likes. what's the dude's name? Um, um, like he's like a a, a cheer, yeah. cheery kind of like bard. Tom character. Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. They cut right. Tom Bombadil because the whole thing with uh, the Lord of the Rings is there's this ring, there's this magic ring, mm-hmm. and it it it's, it corrupts you. Whoever owns it becomes corrupted by power because the ring wants to go back to its original owner, who is the most evil being in the land. Um. And uh, only the hobbits, who are, they, they value peace and tranquility. Mm. Uh, creature, they're not creature comforts, in fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they're, they're, they're pacifists. They don't want to do anything, you know, untoward or violent. And they don't even really want to mm. leave their houses or stop smoking weed. Uh, but uh, they're, a, they're a, not immune to it, but it, it doesn't hit them as hard because mm. they're not particularly greedy or proud mm. or, or, a, uh, uh, or, or violence prone. There's a, a great line. It's in the book and it's also in the animated movie mm. where... Um, they're they're going through something really scary and and Bilbo Baggins is really stressed out as vo- voiced by Orson Bean. Yeah, uh, he's really stressed out and uh, uh, Gandalf says to him, "I just think of the things that bring you pleasure." And the line of dialogue is, "Eggs and bacon, a good full pipe, my garden at twilight, cakes." <laughs> <laughs> Simple what, things. What a good life he Sim- leads. Yeah. Simple <laughs> pleasures, right? That's Tolkien very much valued that. Uh, but where was it, where was it going with this? Well, but the, the idea was they ran into this one character early on in the Lord of the Rings named Tom Bombadil, who was also immune to the uh, who was completely immune to the ring. He had no interest in it, right. and um, that kind of torpedoes the concept, doesn't it? If like, well, we can just give it to Tom. Okay, done. So Tom kind of lifts out completely. There's already a lot of plot holes in Lord of the Rings anyway. Just give the fucking thing to the eagles, fly it over the volcano, drop the fucker in there. We're done by lunchtime. Well, isn't part of the deal, though, that you can't touch it? Like, you give it to an eagle and it's not an the eagle. The eagle picks up a yeah. hobbit. Oh, there The right. hobbit just goes, ah, done. Boom. We're, seriously, we're done in a day. Like, it's over. Yeah, they don't have, like ground to eagle yeah. missiles or anything yeah the, the bigger the lord of the rings gets the more like there's like all these little things that just start creeping in and just don't really work for me and um i i really do like peter jackson's lord of the rings trilogy a lot i think it's a very very good series of epic adventure films but you're right there is an irony to them i think the hobbit movies are worse much much worse because the original hobbit is a story about a, a young hobbit who uh, a relatively young hobbit uh, who is uh, enlist, in, enlisted by a group of dwarves uh, who are going on a treasure hunt. They're going back to this uh, mountain that used to be their kingdom. It's been taken over by a dragon, and they're going to reclaim their dra- uh, their king. They're going to re- reclaim their treasure and kill the dragon. He's brought in to be a burglar. Why? Because I think. Gandalf realized that they needed someone to tell them they're idiots sometimes. Mm. I think that's the secret plot of the movie. <laughs> um, but uh, it all ends with the dwarves get the, the gold and then they completely lose their minds with greed and they become assholes. And then everyone comes mm. everyone comes to them, some with legitimate claims well, uh, and, some with, and some without. They're just like, hey, listen, uh, when you unleashed that dragon, it destroyed our entire city and we killed it for you? 
Could you help? It, it didn't have a name. It was just called like Lake Town. I think. It was like yeah. that was the name of the town. Yeah. It was Lake Town. You know, it was like Hollywood. It's a wood of holly. There you go. Fine. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they destroyed Lake Town. We killed the dragon for you. That was kind of us. Uh, could you help? Mm. And the dwarves are just like, no. And Hobbits are like, you have so much gold. Give them some gold. What are you doing? They helped us out. They're great. So it all leads to this giant battle. And the battle of the five armies. Yeah. My favorite thing about the the, the biggest difference between like the Hobbit, the animated movie, mm. and the live action movies, other than the fact that the Hobbit is like 90 minutes long and doesn't cut anything out. <laughs> like you've got the whole movie. Like it doesn't need to be that long. Like it's ridiculous. The Battle of the Five Armies pretty much gets its whole movie. Like, a whole movie is just oh, nonstop they, action they, and mania. They cut out a werebear. There's a werebear in the book. That's not okay, the you're movie. right. They did yeah. cut out the werebear. They did cut out mm. that guy. But mostly it's all there. Mm. Um, the Battle of the Five Armies is pretty much a whole movie of nothing but war. In the book, it happens off camera. Why? Because war is stupid. And, and it's and bad. Uh, Bilbo says, like, I don't understand war. He leaves the battlefield and he well, just waits well, by he, a tree. He gets, hit, he gets hit on the head. Oh, that's right. He gets hit on in, the, in he, the book, he gets he gets hit on the head. He in, the gets movie, hit on... in the movie, he just leaves. No, no, no. They say he he, got, he leaves and then he gets hit on the head off camera. It's like, he oh, wakes yeah. up and it's like, oh, I got hit on the head. Oh, I thought, he was, what I thought I he was just like I think they, wait, waiting for it to be over. They have it both ways. But um, yeah, and in the end, we they, everyone realizes that war is stupid. Uh, it's a great animated movie. The animation mm. style is a little weird by today's standards. Everything's really exaggerated, but I think it's really striking and fun. Uh, mm. The music's really, really good. Yeah, the dragon looks cooler than the animated one than it does in the movie in the live action movies. Mm. Um, it's yeah. great. It sings. I love this movie. Um, I've seen footage of uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who, mm. who uh, he played the dragon yeah. in in uh, Peter Jackson's version. Smaug, Smaug the dragon, yeah. and. First of all, they distorted his voice. So yeah. if, if you're going to do that, just get anybody. Um, yeah, don't yeah. don't hire a famous actor. And then they also did it in mocap. Like they mm-hmm. they put a, like the the face mounted camera on him, and he was like crawling around on the floor doing all this dragon stuff. You can't tell that in the movie. No, you really it's such a you waste of money. You just animated a fucking yeah. dragon at that. Maybe maybe that's cheaper now. I don't know. Uh, who, who's to say? They already yeah. got the equipment. Um, just do a hand puppet at that. point. Anyway, uh, I, I like the original. The, I like the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. I like mm-hmm. the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. But for me, the ultimate mm-hmm. Tolkien adaptation is the animated Hobbit. I think it gets I it know. right. I think it understands. You know. How to adapt it faithfully mm-hmm. without wasting our time. It's really, really, really good. <laughs> and we should move on. All right. um, I, I have one other sort of fantasy-based uh, okay. novel on my list. Uh, and it's considered one of the first horror movies. It's considered one of the first science fiction movies. It was published in 1818. It's Frankenstein. Uh, written by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Are you um, going for the uh, James Whale version? Specifically, the James Whale version yeah. when it comes to film. Um, Are you doing Frankenstein I'm, and Bride of Frankenstein? Like as a just time, Frankenstein. Or? Interesting. Uh, just choice. the first one. Bride of Frankenstein is often considered the better movie. Mm-hmm. It in- it introduces all this new stuff that wasn't in the original book. It's, it's but a, it also includes yeah. a lot of stuff that was. Yeah, like like the, the, the like stuff, the monster like learning to become more human yeah, this, this and stuff like with the wanting a bride. Like, yeah, that's the, all in there. That's all in in the uh, in the original book as well. I've I'm fond of Brana's version as well. I'm the only one. I will the, say this the, about the affection Bram- the rest of the world seems to have for that terrible Bram Stoker's Dracula version from uh, mm-hmm. Francis Ford Coppola is a it's it's a terrible terrible movie. Crossing uh, that off the list. <laughs> that's the affection I have for yeah. Brana's Frankenstein, which came out two years later. Uh, my, I will say that I will say this about Bra- uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, which I rewatched not that long ago. Mm. Uh, 
Robert De Niro is great in that movie. If nothing yeah, well, else, I think Robert De Niro is a really great, distinct version of the monster. I think he gives a wonderful performance. Not, not just the way he looks, but yeah, his performance. No, no his performance well, is yeah. really very, very like nuanced and interesting. Yeah. And but, yeah, I love like, that what, version of that character. Yeah, it's just like he's sitting in the ice cave. What if my soul? Do I have one? Like yeah. in that De Niro sort like, of way. He gets because well, yeah. Brandon got to the bit where he got to be like become not just like smarter, but smart, articulate, thoughtful, mm. and it really hammers home that like if. Dr. Frankenstein hadn't freaked out mm. This would have all been fine But instead he just rejected his child Because it was ugly yeah, Like that's yeah. it It's so well, fucked up So I, I, I like that whole bit I just think the movie is like Kind of paced bad And it's got some well, I, Writing I, that doesn't really work I, I, I appreciate that in, in that version of Frankenstein um, Kenneth Branagh cast himself As Dr. Frankenstein Yeah uh, Of course he does He gives himself the lead uh, and the monster would have been a more interesting role for him. I, ironically. I would think so, but you know, yeah. he was—he was like at, at the peak of his hotness, and he worked yeah. out for the role, and he's shirtless a this, lot. And, the scene where he's uh, making the Frankenstein monster—it involves him like riding rails on things and jumping down shirtless into goo. Yeah, and it's, like, it's like look at how hot I am while I make a monster out of human flesh. <laughs> so weird. That's why I like. That's why I, I know that's, just, that's, that's probably the best part of the it's, movie. It's wonderful, <laughs> crazy, but uh, all of the stuff with Doctor Frankenstein is yeah. really—it uh, it is. It's really crazy, whirly, whirling. Mm-hmm. Dervish, even when he's just sort of hanging out, there's a lot of camera movement, and uh, Kenneth Branagh depicts him as this like selfish brat. Okay, uh, oh, yes. essentially, is he, that's, he doesn't that's kind think, of one of the defining characteristics yeah, of Doctor. He doesn't think of anybody but himself. Yeah. Uh, it's not that he's like power mad. It's like now I know what it feels like to be God, like Colin Clive says in the James Whale version. Mm-hmm. It's more like. I'm just not thinking about anything. I'm just yeah. going to do what I he's, want. He's a young man who thinks yeah. he's like solved the scientific problem and isn't thinking about the consequences at all. He's yeah, not yeah. there yet. Uh, and all of those scenes are like really chaotic. Um, and when we get to the monster, the camera stops moving. Yeah. There's no music. It's just really sort of quietly paced. Uh, and the monster gets to grow and be more adult than Dr. Frankenstein ever was. So yeah. I, I, that's what I like about Brown's version. I, I like those things. I just think the rest of the movie doesn't hold up to those things. But anyway, what, what I love about, about the James Whale. What I love about the James Whale version is a, it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's like an actual horror story. Uh, and it does deal with uh, that sort of hubris, which I like, uh, in the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God, which if you watch an older version is just a thunderclap. Oh, yeah, uh, they took was, that line out because it was too blasphemous. Yeah, it was yeah. considered too blasphemous at the time. Well, it was uh, fine but, initially, and then, like, the production code came along, and that was, and like, they had, they had to, to censor cut that it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I love uh, Fritz is played by Dwight Fry. Oh, God, uh, such a creepy jerk. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you created a monster. I'm going to abuse it horribly yeah. to make myself feel better. What an asshole. The scene where Fritz dies is like so <laughs> striking and horrifying, even though he's an asshole. Mm. Like, it's just such a creepy. James Whale's Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein, which I, I think there's an argument to be made that although Bride of Frankenstein is more like complex and imaginative, I think Frankenstein, I think you're right, it's kind of like a more complete story mm. in, a, in a way. It like kind of just strips it's, everything it's, it's down. A, it's, it's a little more intimate. There's fewer yeah. characters. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot less humor. Um, all, all of the gay camp, all that fun stuff, is only in Bride. Um, yeah, well, it's hinted at, but it's mostly gone. But like the there, there's a there's a striking simplicity to it. Mm. Man creates monster. The scene where Boris Karloff shows up for the first time, and you get to see the monster, and he just turns around slowly. Mm. Such a masterful bit of patient filmmaking, incredible makeup effects, mm, and, and a great performance because he's yeah, dead. He's not a mm. fun walking around zombie like ah. like no no. 
he's a corpse who doesn't understand why it's moving. Yeah. Like, it's really fucking creepy if you really sit down and focus on it. And that's something we don't get from either from Bride of Frankenstein or a lot of Frankenstein adaptations. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you read the original novel, uh, the monster is described... You know, large doesn't have like the big square head like in the movies. Or, yeah, you know, that's, that's just uh, the the bolts in the neck wouldn't come until much much later. Actually, it has nothing to do with the James Whale movies. Um, it's got like they're not bolts; they're like little electrodes. Um, yeah, and is and, and if you look at some of the early posters, they were gonna have like electrodes in his forehead as well. Yeah, you see that in some paintings. But those well, they ended up using that in Monster Squad because they couldn't put bolts in his neck for like legal reasons because that, that version was too close. Yeah. Um, uh, but in the description of the monster is uh, it's it's large has long dark hair and and yeah the, the the only description is that it's just a carrion death yeah it's just a dead thing yeah and, and if you've ever yeah, been around and, I, I and don't recommend don't, it but if you've ever been around a corpse mm. it's eerie that mm. person should be alive <laughs> that's not right they, there's they, only they, they're, they're, they're there, there but they're not anymore they're yeah. there but they're not there that's yeah. a husk yeah, yeah and it's very unsettling and it is disturbing and. Just to have that husk walking around, but without any of the cognition mm. that you would expect from a human being. The eyes that like are taking in their surroundings or mm. little subtle inflections to suggest you know, communication. Mm. Without any of that, fucking horrifying, mm. really. And I think we're a little immune to it now because the character has been sort of filtered through cartoons and yeah, other things. And if you just watch the original the, on its own the, merits... The is now is playing yeah. a band. Yeah, and... if you see it, like, the original on its own merits, it's a wonderfully creepy yeah, movie. And I think that first movie, the, the 1931 film, yeah. uh, is just has all of those mm. qualities. Um, yeah. The book is far more complex. Uh, it's a lo- much longer story. Um, it's more feminist. Uh, yeah, ways. well, yeah. Mary, Mary Shelley wrote it. And, I'm just you know, saying, like James Whale didn't really focus on is, that. Then, yeah, yeah. No. but um, yeah, but yeah, I, I feel like uh, that that first movie does understand that this is a really interesting horror story, even yeah. though you know up, it's updated. It takes place in modern day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, when does the movie? It, take, it doesn't think, take place I, in 1818. I think, anyway. I think it takes place in kind of a nebulous time, though. Like you can yeah. kind of argue it takes place at a couple. Of, it, it's it's not super specific. Mm. So I always felt this kind of took place out of time. That kind of gothic, universal horror feel mm. always felt kind of timeless to me. Yeah. Um. Although maybe that's just me watching it older. You know, like I remember when uh, they did uh, the Mummy, the Stephen Summers Mummy. Mm. Uh, there was a draft uh, that was done by John Sayles. Oh, okay. John Sayles, uh, one of Hollywood's most prolific and respected script doctors, but also an incredible uh, mm-hmm. filmmaker who made films like Lone Star mm-hmm. and Limbo and uh, uh, Matawan, and he's an incredible mm-hmm. filmmaker. Uh, but he did he did a version of uh, uh, The Mummy that was set in the present day. And apparently one of the notes that he was given was, why don't we make it a period piece like the original? And he sent a note back, the original was not a period piece. The original was set in the present day. And they were like, oh yeah, because it just sort of feels right for that to take place a long ass time ago for some reason. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the movie's 90 years old at this point. So uh, it it was a long ass time ago. Uh, yeah, Frankenstein. Uh, mm. And I also want to say that this is also my chance to uh, use my spot for Frankenstein to fill in all those classic monster <laughs> stories. Yeah. Because I've read Dracula really as well, and I don't want to yeah. take up another spot for Dracula. And, um, Island I like, of I like Lost Dracula. Souls. I like, yeah. yeah, that's a great one, too. Actually, I haven't read The Island of Dr. Moreau. You never read that? Yeah. Oh, weird. That's, mm. that's one I actually have read. Okay. That's a great adaptation. Mm. Um, okay, well, I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with a movie that is not a horror movie, but it does have monsters. Okay. 
Uh, and it is a very respectable, very fanciful, very entertaining adaptation of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, mm. directed by George Powell. Yeah. No, no, not not the uh, early 2000s version. No! <laughs> it is not the early 2000s I, I, version. I have, uh, I have that one as a runner-up on my list. The, 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 George, the, 2000, pa- the George Powell. Oh, the George Powell version. Yeah, yeah the, the early 2000s version with Guy Pearce. There's stuff I like in that movie, actually, mm. but it doesn't really work. As a proper, just old-fashioned parable, George Powell's version is really, really great. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't read The Time Machine or you've only heard of it, the story of uh, someone who was like, you know, in the late 1800s, a, a gentleman inventor uh, who invents a time machine and thinks he's going to go into the future and see this fabulous utopia. And what he discovers is that civilization has collapsed <laughs> completely. And uh, civilization now has been reduced to two... Very different classes of people. There's the well, Eloi. They're not, they're not, different species at this they're, point. This yeah. one they've evolved into different species. There is the Eloi, who look who are basically human, uh, mm. but they've eschewed education. They live in this kind of Garden of Eden kind of like seems like it seems kind of perfect, but there's no education. There's no philosophy. No, just... There's no thought. They're living lives of absolute ignorance, but they seem kind of cool with that. And in the book, it's stressed how inhuman they are. Yeah. That they're actually like, they're like three feet tall and they have these sort of I don't remember enlarged, enlarged heads. Like they don't look human. I, I haven't, all. I've read the book, but I haven't read the book since like junior high. Okay. Yeah. So that part of me for me is vague and I'm probably remembering the movie better. And anyway, in the movie there's, but there's also uh, the Morlocks who live underground and become quite monstrous. Uh, and they're the ones who actually keep shit running. <laughs> they're the ones who actually do all the goddamn work. Mm-hmm. And um, every once in a while, in order, in, in exchange for keeping things running and keeping the Eloy just blissful and ignorant, uh, the Morlocks will come up and eat them. That's that's their they, they're they, they eat Eloys. They eat the they eat the and you realize that like oh it seems like they're kind of eating the rich, but actually you realize that the Eloy are basically just cattle. Mm. Uh, it's really quite horrifying and monstrous. And and it's a terrifying thing to think about happening to humanity. Is that kind of like uh, enormous divide very transforming ob- the species? Obvious class metaphor. Yeah. Very obvious class metaphor, but a good one. Um, exciting monster effects. Great production design. George Powell really knew how to put great production design in his movies, and they're all wonderful looking. Um, uh, Rod Taylor isn't the greatest actor in the world, but I think he's exactly what the movie needs. He needs just this kind of well, the, uh, stoic, uh, uh, righteous the movie, inventor man. The movie needs somebody like Guy Pearce, and that's not bad casting. It's just a terrible yeah. script. Yeah. Um, the idea of just a, a curious scientist, I think uh, Guy Pearce was very good at that. Yeah, um, yeah, he's just sort of trapped. Everything I like about the 2000s uh, time machine... Mm has nothing to do with the Morlocks and the Eloy. All yeah. of that stuff is awful. Uh, the invention of the time machine, how he goes into the future. I love and the sees, design of the time machine you know, the, in the new one. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the design from the old one, but it just looks it's, fancier. It's like it looks slicker, like more glass like and everything. Works, it looks like a cool looking device. The yeah. relationship he has with a museum hologram played by an actor named Orlando Jones. Yeah, that's a good one. Actually. That stuff's good. That's I like that kind of, stuff that's about a, That bit yeah. surprisingly works. I remember yeah. thinking to myself, what the fuck are they going to go with this? And it actually ended up being really, really good. Um, I love, uh, there's a couple of things about the time machine that aren't really directly related to the time machine. Uh, one, do you, re- do you ever notice the time machine's cameo in Gremlins? 
Yes. One of the funniest jokes, and they do not call attention to it. Joe Dante loved to throw in, like, little references. Gremlins 2 is, like, full of this shit. But, um, yeah. And Looney Tunes back in action. Once they get to Area 51, just nothing but references to old (laughs) sci-fi. But there's a bit in Gremlins where the dad, who's got an inventor's conference or a a convention, Mm. uh, he's on the phone with his family. And like you see like other stuff going on on the convention floor, and when one scene in, he's in talking, the background, it's not even yeah. like in focus. No, yes, yeah. it's like in the background. You see like he's standing in like in front of like not right away, like two booths down. Someone has brought the time machine from the movie The Time Machine, and it's like whirring up. And then he's talking to someone on the phone. We cut to like his wife or to Zach Galligan or something. Mm. And then when it cuts back to him, the time machine is gone, and everyone's like, "Where at? What yeah, There's people Where's like looking for. There's a puff of smoke in the air. <laughs> really, really amazing. Uh, the other thing that I love about the time machine is that for many years when I was a little kid, there was something I didn't understand. And it wasn't until I saw, I saw it first, it wasn't until I saw the time machine mm. that I finally figured out how Fraggle Rock works. Because <laughs> the Fraggles mm. dance their cares away yeah. and do nothing all day. And the doozers do all the goddamn work. work. Yeah. The doozers eat Fraggles. Makes sense to me. That's how it works. That's exactly and, how that uh, works. If you recall, the doozers like they build things that are like they're like made of candy. I think like the fraggle like the fraggles to me, but the fraggles eat their, their eat, eat yeah. the, what the doozers build. Yeah, the fraggles so the contribute doozer, nothing. The doozers are are feeding their cattle. Is what they're yeah, doing. The, the the fraggles contribute nothing to society. It's all doozers, man. Anyway, we got to move on. Uh, but anyway, I really really like the George Powell time machine. It's very very good. I, I do as well. Yeah. Uh, that's the last of sort of my my fantasy uh, novels that I have. I think on here. I have one. I have one more. Okay, I'll get um, to it next. I guess. I I do have a uh, a piece of literature that um, does involve prophecy. Okay. Uh, and the gods are a big part of it, although they're not characters per se in it. Okay. Uh, but it is uh, Sophocles' immortal tragedy, Oedipus Rex. Which movie uh, version are we talking about? Oh, let me look at the actual year. Um, there was a state, a Canadian staging of Oedipus Rex. Interesting. Uh, in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, I believe. Really, I don't. I don't think I know this one. Or, or am I thinking of the the sixty eight version? Um, this, uh, if if you know, um, it's based on the William Butler Yeats uh, translation, mm. and it's staged very much like the ancient Greek tragedies were. Mm-hmm. Um, ancient Greek tragedies tend to be written in threes. If you've ever read uh, um, the Oresteia, that's a series of three plays. There were three tragedies and usually it was followed by like one body comedy. They were yeah. presented in sets of four. Um, Oedipus Rex is like one piece of a larger tragedy. It's the best known. Um, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King. And um, the story of Oedipus goes that... Uh, Oedipus is uh, rising into power. He's prophesied to murder his father and then also marry his mother. Uh, it's where we get the term Oedipus complex from uh, yeah. out, of, out of Freud. Uh, Freud took the name from this play. Yeah. Uh, and even though uh, Oedipus is now king and everything's hunky-dory and he has a queen and everything's great, it's like, oh, I have a queen, my, my life is great. <laughs> But he starts to learn some details and a prophet comes on stage and the chorus begins to sort of expand on what's happening. Then he learns that all these prophecies have come true. 
And it's about this sort of slow, sad realization that, oh, crap, I did kill my father. Oh, no, I did marry my own mom. My my kids, I had my kids with my mom. This mm-hmm. is a, this is fucking awful. Super awkward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just. I mean, the family reunions. Can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, and at the end of the play, he is so aghast that he pulls out his own eyes. I, I've never understood that. It always feels like your eyes weren't the problem, dude. There are other, uh, other well, bits that are this, maybe more... This idea more... of not being able to see what's right in front of you is, okay. is a big theme. Of oh, I see what you mean. Okay, Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was being playful. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the play is really harrowing. Um, if, if you're not into ancient Greek tragedy, give it a try. Um, it does yeah. deal with... Uh, morality in a way that we're not quite used to. It deals with uh, a lot of harsh, violent things mm-hmm. that we don't really it sort did, of attribute ourselves to. It deals with but... inevitability in a way yeah, that we, yeah, we're, we generally don't talk about in Western mm-hmm. Canada unless we're doing some kind of weird, depressing like time travel story, like the butterfly effect or something. Like, yeah, or the idea like, of, things repeat themselves. Yeah, the idea that our fate is inevitable mm-hmm. and that we're kind of trapped well, and like well, even no matter how much we try to break out of it, we're just making it happen more. It's well, not really a Western sensibility now. Well, no, it totally is. If you, if you well think about what we're doing with remakes, there's sort of a fatalism to all of these things. We're going to we're going to start thing. we're going to tell the same story again, but we're not going to change anything. Uh, here, here's where I disagree with that. Mm. It's not because that is about telling the story over and over again. I'm talking about characters wrestling with their own sense of fate. Okay. I feel like yeah, that's, that's less true. common now. That's true. I feel that's like true. that's what I'm talking about in terms of mm. like yes, we're retelling the same stories because mm. the Greek tradition was it wasn't like you invent your own stories. It was you tell old stories over and over again in new ways. Mm. That was how it worked. We are doing that now, and yeah. that's fine. I guess if it was okay enough for the ancient Greeks. Why not now? But like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, my point is, there's fatalism isn't quite as pervasive an issue in our drama now. Um. But I've never seen this version of uh, Oedipus Rex. I've never, I don't think I've ever, have yeah. I ever seen a stage version of it. Um, I don't think I have. The, the film version that I, I like is from 1957. It was directed okay. by Tyrone Guthrie. And yeah, it was sort of staged against huh. sort of this black background. They found this just generic interior mm. and all the uh, all the actors are wearing masks just like an ancient greek tragedy um the characters would be mm. communicated through the masks they wear yeah it, and uh, there were also choruses that would dance in unison and recite lines in unison large groups of people um if you look at the cast of this movie you'll find that a, a young william shatner was one of the chorus members in this uh, production of, of oedipus rex That's fun. uh he's wearing a mask you won't be able to tell mm. which one it is but he's in there somewhere and uh, it it takes on the poetic rhythms of ancient theater. I feel like this is something um, modern drama doesn't... Te- they don't tend to skew toward poetry. Uh, A, because poetry is, I guess, just not appealing to the masses in the way it once was, I guess. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to staging, the uh, the habit for a long time now has been to give it sort of a natural feel, try to make it seem as realistic as possible, or at least uh, melodramatic in a realistic sort of way. Hmm. And I think what what we're losing is a lot of poetic bombast Mm -hmm. that gives it an operatic heightened feeling. Yeah. Uh, that makes the emotions much much larger. Well, because people are talking about their emotions. It's yeah, not just yeah. like and, uh, we're never, they're, they're not they're not beating around the bush or even necessarily you know being metaphoric a lot of the time. They're just saying how they feel more. And there's something that we, like uh, we we kind of eschewed that uh, a lot of the time. And I think we're missing it. I think it's important. You know, we, we see a lot of modern Shakespeare adaptations, and they try to make the the language sound very modern, very sort of natural, mm-hmm. coming out of people's mouths. And of course, we want to 
these characters to feel more real, but that is at the expense of declarative poetry. And I feel like Mm -hmm. this is a production that focuses on the declarative poetry where uh, there's like a a sort of a slowness and a rhythm that really draws you in. Um, I, I like the play. And I really like this production of it, the, the 1957 version. You could probably find it like on on whatever your library lending service. Well, that's is. exciting. I, I I said I don't think I've ever seen a production of it. I think I've seen like a like a cartoon adaptation or something once, but I never actually oh, yeah. seen like a like on like PBS or something. But I never actually seen a live action. That's interesting. All right. Um, okay. Well, uh, I got. I told you I have one more sort of sci-fi fantasy oriented uh, piece of classic lit, mm. uh, and this was the one that. Uh, you might give me some shit for this, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to stand by it. All right. And um, I, Whitney, I have my shit giver ready. <laughs> Whitney, yes, I love you, mm-hmm. but we only have 14 hours left to save the Earth. What? What book is this? Well, it's not a book. Mm. It's Flash Gordon. Oh, it's Flash Gordon. Okay. Flash Gordon, the uh, Mike Hodges film, uh, is based on a comic strip from the 1930s. We never said classic literature couldn't be a comic book. I I suppose not. And I consider Flash Gordon a little different from, like, adaptations of Batman. I I was considering Uh, something like Little Nemo, but I don't think think there's a great Little Nemo movie. The the animated animated film looks good. The stunning animation. I was thinking about that, too, actually. The Mm. Little Nemo uh, animated movie, gorgeous. Not a great movie, but definitely worth seeing if you're into animation. Like, it's mm. gorgeous animation. Like, holy crap, good animation. Um, but uh, but I feel like a lot of the adaptations of stuff like Batman and Superman, they're just constantly updating things. Mm. They're not translating. They're not going back to the original. They're not uh, uh, trying to, like, basically adapt. I wish what, they would. Wish, I kind of wish they would. If they're going to make a Batman movie, set it in the 30s. Why not? They're, they're, it's a really valid way mm. to take it, and I think it would be super awesome. Um, I also consider Dick Tracy, which I think is also a great adaptation as well. But, but I feel the, like Flash... The, the Dick Tracy comic strips are not great. Oh, Dick, yeah. Well, we're not, we're, this isn't yeah. about the original. It's yeah, about I thing. And, and I think uh, Classic Lit isn't necessarily all about depth. It's about sort of staying power. Um, does it stay relevant? And I think Flash Gordon is an enormously important and influential work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Flash Gordon, of course, is a story of uh, a hunky American football player uh, who gets dragged into outer space and ends up fighting a bunch of evil empires to bring American democratic values to various imperialist mm-hmm. assholes. And he meets a bunch of people, like he meets like mer people and hawk people, and it's all cool. Um and, and they, they got over the racism of Ming the Merciless by casting a Swedish actor. <laughs> yeah, did they, though? I mean, that's, no, that's they, admittedly they still, one they still, problem with it. They still it. give him sort of that, like, Fu Manchu look. That, that's but, admittedly yeah. a problem with it. I mean, you can't hide it, and you have to you have to talk mm. about it. But, you know, there's a lot of movies that have similar issues. Again, Star Wars is still a colonialist fantasy as well. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of uh, caricatures in there, too. That part sucks, and I freely admit that. Uh, but... The rest of the movie, I think, is actually very, very faithful and also very uh, excitingly capturing the spirit of those comics. Sometimes faithfully the story, sometimes not. Um, but there is a sense of real extempore, I feel, with the original Flash Gordon. If you ever actually sat down and read the comics, there was just there were no rules. Uh, n- not extensively. Like I'm familiar yeah. with the comics, but yeah, yeah. I've not like actually sat and read an entire volume. Yeah. It, it's it. There weren't. I mean, it, it was it was a ripoff of Buck Rogers. No one's pretending otherwise. Mm-hmm. But they're just comics in the golden age of comics, like newspaper comics were more ambitious. They were bigger. A lot of the time, there was a lot of 
real fanciful storytelling and it just didn't feel like uh, the safety was on in terms of like what was creatively possible um and there's something just incredibly charming about that and i feel that the mike hodges adaptation of flash gordon captures that really really well Hmm. um i think it is star wars is desperate to feel grounded and flash gordon does gives no shits what, things what, things what, are here because I they I look, like it more. Yeah, yeah, things are here because they look cool. Uh-huh. Doesn't matter if they work. <laughs> doesn't matter if there's any science behind it. It doesn't matter if this clothing would be comfortable. What matters is it looks awesome. It looks really exciting, and everyone looks amazing. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm, this you're, is a hard. I'm, Queen, Queen provides a better score than John Williams. There, that yeah, what I was, that's what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> I was having a hard time with it. And I was really seriously like, do I really want to say this? Yeah. And in the end, yes. Yeah. I yeah. love John Williams' score to Star Wars. It's an important score. It's a great score. I'm not denigrating that score at all. Queen is better. <laughs> Queen's score to Flash Gordon is the most exciting film scores ever made. You know how everyone like freaks out about like Daft Punk's score to Tron Legacy? It's like that, but mm. like decades and, earlier and better. And, like yeah, that's and, the Queen score to Flash Gordon. The, just that opening theme song, where, like it begins with that bass line. And then we got the entire band singing harmony. Flash! Ah, we'll save everyone else. And then oh, we have, so cool. and then we have uh, like 18 Brian May guitar riffs like <laughs> layered over each other. Yeah, gosh, it's so exciting. It's an incredible, mm. it's an incredible work of pop art. Yeah, I think you just it cannot be denied, and I think it's like a real. It really does. There's there's chins to it, but it's still effective. Yeah. Uh, it's aware of its own chins. Yeah, it, it modernizes the story cinematically without modernizing the story, mm. and I think that's why I think it's a great adaptation. Yeah. Even though there's parts of it that aren't as faithful, uh, various filmmakers like apparently turned it down because it wasn't faithful enough. Sergio mm. Leone was offered this movie, and he said, "I think it's not faithful enough to the Flash mm. Gordon comics," and he turned it down. Uh, Weird, but in, okay. In fact, from from what I understand, and uh, people know the details about this that better than I do. But yeah. George Lucas was trying to make a Flash Gordon film. No, he absolutely yeah, was. And That's he, what he wanted, he wanted to do to instead adapt, of Star Wars. And uh, but like there was some rights issue. Like, Dino De Laurentiis already had it, and he wouldn't give right, it to George yeah. Lucas. Basically, uh, so yeah, George Lucas said, "Well, I'll do something like it," and that's what Star yeah. Wars came. There's out a with. very like there's a very close offshoot reality in which George Lucas made the Flash Gordon movie, mm. and now everyone's just freaking out about all these Flash Gordon Disney Plus shows. <laughs> like, that's where everyone's head is at. It's just Flash Gordon is everything the, now. The Young Ming Chronicles. Like, yeah. we'd be getting that oh, now. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, I love Flash Gordon, and I think um, there aren't a lot of, like, older comics that have been adapted faithfully enough to consider them classic lit adaptations, mm. and I think this is definitely one of them, yeah, and I, I wanted like to it. include it because I think uh, comics don't get it, don't get accepted as literature often enough, especially when they go yeah, that far back. That's true. Um, there, there was a trend, we talked about this a couple times on the, the podcast, but when uh, when Batman was a big hit in 1989, yeah. uh, Hollywood responded by adapting more Golden Age comics. Yeah, pulp uh, comics. Yeah, pulp like, comics, because yeah. Batman is a 1930s comics character, yeah. and the Tim Burton movie was actually very reminiscent of the 1930s. It wasn't about superhero canon or interconnected characters It's important to remember that the people Uh, running Hollywood were still pretty old at the time when they grew up mm. watching Zorro on TV and listening to the shadow on the radio. That's kind of what a lot of the producers were interested in. It's also... uh, really expensive to make a superhero movie, especially in yeah. the 80s because of the special effects and, and the, the costume 90s, yeah. and the, in the 90s. Yeah. So the the instinct was to make movies of like The Shadow and The Phantom and Dick Tracy mm-hmm. and those are... I actually like those movies. I think Most there is of kind really of a, a, this like weird art deco sensibility to them. They're all knocking yeah. off Tim Burton's Batman 
But I like Tim Burton's Batman. I, and I think the uh, knockoffs are good. I yeah. think I think uh, Dick Tracy is great. Mm. I think The Shadow is really underrated. I think it's a really fun movie. Yeah. Uh, the Phantom. I, I don't understand why everyone who loves the Phantom, but it's well, very it's, entertaining. It's very entertaining. It's it's a it's a movie that like is just its cheapness is it's so flying cheap. off the screen. I think it's, like, I think it's it a really low budget. budget. Yeah, yeah, it's really low budget for man. I think that really hurts it a lot. But yeah. the, the the attitude is good. The attitude. Yeah. Billy Zane, uh, Christy yeah. Swanson, and especially. Um, uh, uh, Treat Williams, Treat Williams yeah. are just perfect in that movie. And Catherine Zeta-Jones, don't forget. Yeah, uh, before she was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and, the year before Zorro. Hadn't made it yet. Um, anyway, uh, but let's move on. What do you got? Well, let's move on. Um, I'm going to talk about... Uh, I've, I've, I like to bring up this movie because I've read this book. Okay. And I like this book a lot. Um, Lawrence Stern in the late 1750s mm. uh, wrote a book called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman. Yeah, I know. And uh, this, is a real, this is an oddity... In uh, in in the novel, this was sort of before novels became kind of mainstream. Um, this was the late 1700s. Uh, an author named Fanny Burney uh, was sort of pushing the form forward a little bit in terms of like romantic drama. I think it wasn't until um, we had the one-two punch of Dickens and Jane Austen that what we think of as the modern novel was really kind of solidified in, right. in the 1800s. Uh, and, you know, there were other novelists as well. But, you know, I think Dickens and Austen really kind of modernized what novels were, like the whole, what the form was. Um, before that, a lot of uh, long-form novels were um, pretty, uh, a lot more mannered, uh, not as exciting. There was a lot less incidents. There, they wasn't, like, necessarily as broad a cast of characters. Uh, and Lawrence Stern wrote this really, really unusual novel that plays like a deconstruction before the form even existed. Uh, the story is about mm. this character, Tristram Shandy, who, uh, in the cor- over the course of the novel, is dictating to the reader that he's going to write his own memoir. You're about to hear the, the, the story of his life. And he uh, goes off on all of these tangents about other people in his family. And then he goes off on another tangent about the war. And then he goes off on another tangent. He goes off on another tangent and this character dies. And then there's a page that's just completely black. And then there's a page that's just a marble pattern. And it's it's this really weird, bizarre, like, postmodern novel. Uh, And he goes off on so many tangents, by the time you get to the end of this 800-page novel, he gets to his birth. That's the joke. And then at the very end, somebody says, what was this story even about? And somebody says, a cock and a bull. It's a cock and bull story. Um... This couldn't be ever made into a movie. And yet. And yet. Uh, in, I think it was in 2005. Mm. Uh, they just, or it's 2006. Uh, Michael Winterbottom attempted to do so. But because it's such a weird, self-aware postmodern novel, the movie is about the making of a Tristram Shandy movie. So we got to a lot of uh, scenes set in the modern day where they're talking about how difficult it is to adapt this movie. And it's called, uh, Trist- in the United States, it was released as Tristram Shandy, colon, A Cock and Bull Story. Got it. I think in England, it's just A Cock and Bull Story. Uh, and uh, Steve Coogan play- is going to play the Tristram Shandy character, but he's also playing a version of himself. Uh, the things he has to do to prepare for the role. There's a scene in the book, and this is real, uh, where the young uh, a young character is peeing out of a window, like has to really really pee, and the nanny doesn't know what to do, so it pees out a window, and once you know it, the window falls and crushes his junk. This is a big plot point in the book, <laughs> and there's a scene where uh, they get to dramatize that in the film. Lloyd in a Kaufman's film. Tristram Shandy, and uh, uh, S- Steve Coogan. <coughs> 
is shown preparing for the role. It's like, well, how do I how do I act this? I want to be a little bit more method about this. This is a serious work of literature. So he drops a hot coal down his pants. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just we get to don't see do him that. thrashing about in pain with a hot coal down his don't pants. Don't do that. It's uh, bad. There's you, I, I mentioned there's a page in the book where a character dies and we just sort of see a, a page of black. And we get to see the the producers and the writers like trying to figure out well how do we how do we dramatize that like we can't have a character die and the screen just goes black for a couple seconds I mean we couldn't do that and the screen goes black for a couple uh-huh. seconds and they came on talking no that would be really I really weird. Gotta I think see the this damn would... movie you've you've recommended this movie so many yeah, times it's, I really gotta it's, see this damn thing it it's a. Uh... It's inaccurate because it's like takes place in the modern day and they're trying to make it into sort of this postmodern uh, interpretation of what a modern audience might react to this really rather difficult novel to read. Uh, one might not say it's not faithful, but I think the spirit is there. That's the best way you can adapt Lawrence Stern. Yeah. Lawrence Stern is... I think the best way to adapt most things, caption spirit, yeah, kind of, you, it doesn't matter if you fudge the other thing. Yeah, yeah. so the, the idea of this like postmodern self-aware thing, and there's like... They even use that line of dialogue that a lot of literary critics. So it was postmodern before there was even a modern, and uh, a few characters in the movie use that line. So they're even riffing on the criticism of the book that's come up over over the years. I would recommend you watch the movie, but I, I there's some homework involved. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't want to read Tristram Shandy, at least familiarize mm-hmm. yourself with what the book does, what it is, read some passages, get a flavor of Lawrence Stern's prose because it is really long and complicated. He has sentences that go on for pages and pages and pages. Uh, and uh, one of my early writing gigs, they said, I'll recommend some some books people can read over the summer, long ones. And I had just read Tristram Shandy. So I recommended Tristram Shandy and my entire review, an entire page was one sentence. Nice. I was proud of myself. Nicely done. I fudged it a little like I had some parentheticals and things that I used playfully. But yeah, I, I got it all done with one one sentence. I'm so like proud asides of Asides and hyphens and parentheses. I'm intensely proud of you. That sounds like a great <laughs> exercise. I'm, I'm sure nobody read it. Oh. And, and anybody who did thought, who is this pretentious asshole kid? Well, who's just Then they were on the right page, tw- weren't tw- they? 21-year-old who's writing this Lawrence Stern recommendation. Well, then they nailed it. That's the kind of dick I was. And uh, still am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Oh, someone. Oh, you're getting a little me. buzz on there. Uh, so yeah, that, that's my next recommendation is, is uh, a cock and bull story based mm. on the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, gentlemen. Nice. Okay, I'm going to take us from a movie where uh, a lack of structure is everything okay. to a movie which has to be incredibly uh, tightly wound. Every single uh, moving part has to mm. work in order for this story to be told and to be told in such a way that it feels uh, light and uh, brisk as opposed to some kind of weird math calculation. I'm speaking of the incredible Sidney Lumet rendition of Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> um, based on uh, the classic novel uh, by uh, Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte. No, it was Emily Bronte. Oh, sorry, it's Emily Bronte. Murder on the Orient Express. Em- Emily Agatha Bronte. Christie. Agatha Bronte. <laughs> uh, did, no. It's the lost, lost Bronte sister. There you go. Agatha. Uh, Agatha Christie, of course, uh, is uh, one of the most influential writers hmm. of the early part of the century, at least in the Western canon. She certainly popularized uh, a form of murder mystery that we're still living with today. Hmm. Uh, murder mysteries, I think, all owe a massive debt to Agatha Christie. And I, I don't know if it's her best... Story, but I do believe that Murder in the Orient Express is one of the greatest murder mysteries ever told on film. Mm. Uh, if you haven't seen the original Murder on the Orient Express, I, I think it's the first time it had ever been done. But um, the yeah, Sid- 1974, 
four film. I think that one. Uh, let me tell you. The Orient uh, Express. No, not the Kenneth Branagh version, which I also like. Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh is like, it's like a good, um, it's like a theatrical revival. Yeah. They're, it's, they're just sort of having fun with it. Wonderful cast. Kind of it's breezy. Of, uh, Branagh's really, really fun in the lead role. I have a lot of affection for the Kenneth Branagh version. Uh, but the 1974 version is where it's at. Uh, it stars Albert Finney as the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. 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 Yeah. used to know how to pronounce that. Um, and the whole thing is this. Poirot was a world-famous detective. Poirot just happens to be on a train. Mm. And some on, wouldn't you know it? Someone on the train gets murdered. Stabbed so many times. Stabbed a bunch. And it turns out that not only was the victim a real piece of shit. Just everyone hated them. But everyone who hated them happens to be on this train and every person on the train except for Poirot has a motive to kill this person and Sidney Lumet turns this into this just fantabulous ensemble uh, piece with uh, supporting performances by like the the potential suspects yeah Lauren Bacall Mm. yeah Sean Connery John Gielgud, Vanessa Redgrave, Tim Michael Perkins, York, yeah. Anthony Perkins, Jacqueline Bissett, Ingrid Bergman won an Academy Award for this. Interesting choice. She's great in it. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if this is the other one I would have given it for her. Um, but uh, it's just this giant cavalcade of, ooh, maybe they did it, and ooh, maybe they did it, and nothing adds up. Mm. If you're paying attention to the details of Murder in the Orient Express, if you don't know the ending, um... It's got a great twist. It's got a great ending. It's got a great solution to the murder mystery. There's a reason why nothing's quite adding up. And mm. once you once all the pieces fall into place and you realize how the story does make sense, it's sublime. It's just absolutely sublimely wicked in its construction. It's wicked in its sort of sinfulness and the sort of glee with which Agatha Christie constructs this perfect murder. Mm. Uh, and it's wicked to the audience because in many respects, like this movie, like when you're reading a mystery or when you're watching a mystery, like a proper mystery where you don't know who did it, the it's an interactive novel or it's an interactive film. You're watching Knives Out or whatever and you're trying to figure out who did that. Mm. You're looking at all the clues. You're trying to read into every single line of dialogue. You are the detective. And you're trying to outthink the movie. Sometimes you do, and it's a little annoying. If you don't, and the movie played fair, you're like, yay, I was tricked! It's like going to a great magic show. Uh, Murdering the Orient Express is plays it completely fair, but also defies your expectation as an audience member. Mm. And it's just an absolutely brutal, wicked, devious little trick of a movie. Uh, trick of a story. Uh, incredible characters. Very, very funny Mm-hmm. Uh, gorgeously stylish What a great looking movie this is It's a, a cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth uh, Who had also done uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Cabaret And the original Superman the movie mm-hmm. uh, Just A stunning work You're being very quiet Do you, do you have a particular opinion about this one? Uh, I, I love it I, yeah. love bo- I love both versions of Murder on the Orient Express yeah. uh, I, I didn't expect to like Branagh's version I was, like, I was trepidatious as because well Because it's a murder mystery And if you know the solution going in uh, How are you going to ratchet up suspense? And it turns out Branagh was 
more concerned with speeches and character than he was with the mystery. Yeah, he just wanted to play so, with the fun ensemble. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. And, and at the very end, he has all of the suspects lined up, and there's this like wide, wide shot of them sitting at a long table, like it's the Last Supper. And That's he's, so he's clearly just doing like fun aesthetic things. But yeah, he's yeah, having a good time. L- Lumet is what he's done is turn this really interesting um, uh, murder mystery uh, with a lot of like wickedness into a. What reads throughout long portions is a slapstick farce. It yeah. feels like a Naked Gun movie in certain sequences. Yeah, well, like Poirot uh, is like running up and down the train, <laughs> trying to like grab people, sneak clues, and like it, he's a farcical figure in yeah, a lot of and, ways, and it just really takes you off guard that he's so brilliant. Yeah, but Poirot is actually a really uh, humorous character. He's and comically I think, vain. Uh, yeah. He loves his mustache. There's he's got a, a mustache guard. I was going to mention the mustache guard. So damn um, funny. Uh, yeah, as Albert Finney plays him, uh, there's a scene where we get to see him getting ready for bed, and uh, Poirot's a very fastidious character, so yeah. he's putting, like, a lot of unguents on and fixing himself up. He puts this, like, cap on to keep his hair slicked back, and then he puts on a mustache guard. Like, he's <laughs> essentially all armored up, and of course a big noise wakes him, and he has to undo it immediately. Uh, that, that's, like, it's like something you'd see Leslie Nielsen do in a, uh, one of his comedy movies. Yeah. Uh, it's so it's it's really lively and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't put it on my list because I haven't read the original. Actually, oh, I'm a, I'm an Agatha, actually, I like uh, Agatha Christie. I, a lot, Agatha Christie yeah. is a big hole in in my literary education. So yeah, I haven't read enough Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. but I, I do think she was quite the genius. Um, yeah, I've, I've read you know, Lucretius mm-hmm. and the Theogony and. Mm-hmm. Xenophon and all these you know ancient Greek authors, but yeah, I haven't read a lot of the, the well, modern. And Agatha Christie, some of her shit has aged very, very badly. Mm-hmm. But um, it, just her her devious plotting is mm-hmm. just second to none. Like she's yeah, okay. just absolutely ingenious in the way that she mm-hmm. weaves a mystery and gets the audience swept up in it. And just when you think you really figured everything out, mm-hmm. you did miss something, and it was totally fair, and it's so great. And this is uh, this is just a really brilliant adaptation of it. So, uh, what's your number five? Well, I don't have any crime uh, movie. Well, I do have a crime movie on my list okay. uh, at, at number one. So I'll, I'll hold off on that I don't one. Know what that is okay. Um, but hmm. so far, we have no overlap, which I think is intriguing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have one that uh, a criminal is a very central character to it, uh, and it would be Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Uh, is this the uh, David Lean version? The specifically the the 1946 film. I have not um, seen this version. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I hear it's quite good. I guess so. It's on your list, isn't it? (laughs) So tell me about it. Yeah, the 1946 is probably the most celebrated film version of Great Expectations. Not that we want to build it up too much. We don't want to give you Great Expectations. Oh, my God. It's right. It's always there. Uh, Yeah, you don't have to pick them all up. (laughs) People leave garbage on the street a lot. You don't have to pick it all up. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't think Dickens was garbage, (laughs) Wendy. No, your puns are garbage, you sir. Um... (laughs) That's what I, that's the the analog I was making. <laughs> Great Expectations is the 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 book you hated to read in high school. Um, they often give uh, either A Tale of Two Cities or Great Expectations to uh, high school students because they're Dickens' shortest works. Yeah, they're not going to give Bleak House to to students because it would take most of the year to read it. Which is ridiculous because it's two whole cities in that book. Uh, indeed, there are. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's also it's also like uh, the most exciting. There's a lot of action yeah. and there's intrigue and oh, yeah, they're great stories. They're great prison, stories. yeah. And Dickens was very very good at that at making these big complicated stories that uh, rather frustratingly kind of escape your mind after you read them. It's like mm. which which one was that? Was that the old Curiosity Shop or was that Little Dorrit? Oh, I forgot. Um, great Expectations uh, is the story of a young boy named Pip who, uh, at the very beginning of the story, saves a criminal uh, who sort of meets him while he's out playing 
And the criminal says, I need you to bring, bring me food and free me from my handcuffs. He sneaks back into the house and like does what the thief says. And the thief says, you just did something really, really good. Bye. I, I'll not be important to the plot later. Uh, Pip goes, I'm, only, I'm only played by Robert De Niro in the 90s movie. Oh, Surely yeah. I will be back. Oh, God. That, that's an Alfonso Cuaron movie. It's awful. I, I don't dislike it, but it is a bad adaptation. It's, it's, yeah, it's a it, bad adaptation, but it's a fun, weird film. Like they, they, they try to give looking. the Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet treatment to Great yeah. Expectations. And you know, it's the first golly, thing they it did, does not work. The first thing they did was change Pip's name because they thought it was too like weird Just for modern day. So they silly, called him Finn. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> like, Pip. They named him Finn. Great. Good start. Yeah, and, it's, and it's Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's yeah. about their forbidden love. Is it Vanessa Redgrave who plays Miss No, it's Anne Bancroft playing Miss Havisham. She's good. She's, she's good in she's that good. version. Well, I mean, she's Ms. having Havisham, fun. Miss Havisham is like one of the great literary characters. So yeah. Yeah, you get to If you don't, if you don't know the story of A Great Expectation, so anyway, yeah, uh, give them the gist, yeah. Pip ends up in, in the company of a young lady, and she is being raised by Miss Havisham, who is... Uh, her her uneaten wedding cake from a, a wedding long long ago is rotten on her table, and she what still an wears her old like dusty wedding gown. She was jilted a long time ago and never got over it, yeah. and now hates men and has been sort of preening her ward to essentially like break men's hearts more. Yes, yeah. you she has uh, been designed from birth to hurt men. Yeah, there's a great story. There's a, a really fan. <laughs> Love them. I South love Park did a rendition of Great Expectations because <laughs> there's a character named Pip in South Park named after Pip from Great Expectations. So they said, "Why don't we just do the Great Expectations episode?" And it's totally straight. And Malcolm McDowell uh, narrates it in live yeah. action, and he loves. I love his introduction where he see live. He see live action Malcolm McDowell, and he doesn't say, "Hi, I'm Malcolm McDowell." He says, "Hello, I am a real British person." No, he just says, "I, I, I'm a British person." <laughs> But yeah, the the story plays yeah. pretty straight, and it's about Pip uh, having this romance with this young mm. woman who is like designed to break her heart. And it turns out, in, in of course, in the South Park version of things, Miss Havisham has created a doomsday machine yes, that I need, runs on men's tears. I need men's tears <laughs> to run my Genesis device, yes. and like you, it's been a pretty straight adaptation, mm. except for the jokes until then. So you just like the funniest it's... fucking twist. That's one of my favorite episodes of South Park. It's <laughs> this so is the Great Expectations stupid. episode. Yeah. I, I like the 40s version because it's actually just a really good, mannered, straight version of the story. Yeah. I've seen a, uh, other renditions that try to add like sort of a twist to it, or mm. uh, there's like longer versions on the BBC, which I think add way too, way too much. It's actually a pretty trim story. Yeah, sometimes uh, I feel like some of those, like, you know, we're going to do Dickens, yeah. Pride and Prejudice, and it's four hours. It does not need to be. Mm. There's a lot of details in the book, but yeah, when you come to a film, adaptation like, of, of Dickens or Austin, I, th- I think it's okay to trim a little bit. There's a lot... Well, they're, uh, they're pretty trim to begin with, actually. If in you terms actually of redu- story, If yes. you reduce them to the story, they're fine. They're actually pretty lithe. Like, mm. I, I've never... I love... Pride and Prejudice is maybe my favorite novel. I love Pride and Prejudice. There isn't an okay. adaptation of Pride and Prejudice on my list because I always feel like they come close and never quite nail it. Hmm. You didn't yeah. like the Joe Wright version? I like the Joe Wright version right. a lot. There's something... I haven't seen it in a while. There's something I didn't like about the ending, and I can't remember exactly what it All is, right. so... I need to revisit it at some point. I think they just kind of made it too easy or something, but I, I do like that version a lot. I think that version comes pretty close. Mm. I will say that. I like that version a lot. 
but uh, yeah, and I guess that's like a runner-up for me. Like okay. it's a it's very, very good adaptation. Good. I understand why people love it. It's just, for me, it's never. It doesn't quite get the book, and I, the book is nearly perfect. I, I, love I that feel book. that way about Dickens, and I, I yeah. need to watch more Dickens adaptations because I know they're they're on the yeah. BBC all the damn time. Like you just. It's like Law and Order here in the United States. You you can turn on a channel. You you, f- you only need to hit like three flips before you get to a, a Law and Order broadcast. Well, they had a they had a, uh, a Dickens theme park oh, where yeah. you could actually like walk around in like Dickens Land. And if you by the way, seriously, go I forget what it's called, but like go to YouTube, look up Dickens Theme Park, and just watch the musical commercial where they're explaining the concept of the park. Yeah. It's like Dickens, Charles Dickens, <laughs> he wrote the. The Pickwick yes. Papers, Dickens, Charles Dickens, and then he wrote Oliver Twist later. Whatever it is, it's so it's such a weird, um, funny, like bizarre yeah, thing. I really wish I could have gone to that amusement park. It's gone now, unfortunately. Oh, I'd love to visit. I know. Um, there's some good videos of it online. You can see like the shows yeah. and stuff. I've I've read the complete works of Dickens, mm. and uh, and I love Charles Dickens. Yeah. Uh, his his novels are big and sprawling, and his characters are wonderful. The common uh, criticism that his protagonists are a little dull is true, but I think mm. that's fine because they're surrounded by such interesting characters. Otherwise, mm. being dull is what distinguishes them. Yeah, uh, that's it's like it's like that's how you know that they're decent is that yeah. they're not interesting they're not enough eccentric. to have vice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and he has, and I really appreciate Dickens' politics as well because he. Mm. Uh, he really hated uh, modern economics. He thought that uh, the system that was set up for poverty mm. was designed to keep the impoverished impoverished. And he himself uh, also, mm. if you couldn't tell by reading Oliver Twist, hated the modern state of British orphanages, which sure. were essentially torture factories yeah, it was, at yeah, the time. and uh, Absolutely brutal yeah. so, and so inhumane. He, he yeah. was actually like writing these sort of light, frothy stories that were typically published in, cha- in uh, installments in magazines to really criticize a lot that was going on with the British public mm-hmm. uh, under the guise of light entertainment. Yeah, he was a populist, and mm-hmm. and yet he was a populist who cared about shit yeah. and actually, mm-hmm. like, you know, he, he didn't just like, oh, it's light entertainment, it should have no social relevancy mm-hmm. whatsoever. I don't know who invented this idea. It's it's a very modern notion. It's this, such this, a weird I, this idea notion. that... Um, that entertainment uh, shouldn't have uh, a message behind it. And, because and if he, there's a message, someone might disagree with that message and be uh, left out. If, if, if I can uh, go off on a tangent for a minute. I Please recently, do. I re- recently watched a few films by the filmmaker uh, Marlon Riggs. Uh, they're on Ovid. And uh, Marlon Riggs, uh, a filmmaker, wrote about... Uh, made movies about uh, media and race and sexuality. Uh, he was a gay man. He was a black man. Uh, he was a victim of AIDS. And... He pointed out that a lot of, and he made a documentary about uh, the way black people were depicted on television mm. and how TV in particular uh, had a, a huge um, impact in the United States as to what black identity was mm. and to black people and white audiences. And uh, how he pointed out that a lot of what was depicted on television was to mm. sell the sort of idealized post war family in the 1950s. Mm. And we typically saw a lot of shows about families, and that was used as a way to sort of turn away from the bad news that was going on outside and see what idealized America should look like. And what should idealized America look like, but very white. Very white, Uh, And And so uh, you do get this sense that if television is being wielded 
to give you an idealized version of what the country ought to look like and not face the realities of outside, that there's a political and racial dimension to viewing entertainment as non-political, isn't there? Yeah, what that's, can be more political a, than re- thinking... a weirdly white supremacist notion yeah. that films should not have politics. What, what could be more political uh, than thinking that the art that we consume mm. shouldn't convey ideas and certainly shouldn't address the inequalities and iniquities of our social system. Yep. That is an inherently political idea. Anyway, we're off on a tangent. But uh, Great Expectations, the 46 film, was one I watched in high school, and it was the one that made Dickens sort of come alive for me. Yeah. Um, Like, we were reading it in class, and I didn't quite get it, because I wasn't, I was like 14. Sure. But I watched the film, and I kind of understood what was going on emotionally with the story. So that that David Lean film, uh, Miss Havisham was played by, uh, let me look up the actress, um... Martita Hunt was the actress's name. John mm. Mills plays Pip. Um, Valerie Hobson plays Estella. Gene Simmons, uh, the act- actress Gene Simmons, played a young Estella, like a girl. Oh, I didn't know that. That's and cool. she would grow up to play Miss Havisham in a later edition. Oh, that's really later neat. Version. That's so, fine. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, but th- yeah, I like that 1946. Uh, yeah. Great. Well, you talk about how that's kind of like a formative film for you and it kind of introduced Dickens to you. I, was, mm. I think it's a good segue into a film that introduced me to a world of classic lit. And I still think it's a it's a pretty impeccable adaptation uh and it is ang lee's sense and sensibility that's a good one too it's i love this movie so much it's so fucking tender they they, they kind of nailed pride and prejudice but sense and sensibility they they, they, well i think they did actually uh sense and sensibility uh, came out in 1995 uh was it was adapted by emma thompson who won an academy award for it uh he wrote the screenplay yeah and, and impeccably so wonderful screenplay perfect adaptation um uh, she plays the older sister of Kate Winslet. Uh, they are in, uh, in a family that is not in great financial straits, and uh, both the daughters uh, are looking... They want to get married. They want to find love. Uh, but they couldn't be more different. Uh, Emma Thompson plays Sense. <laughs> Might as well be her name. She's, uh, Sense and Sensibility. They're cops. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So like the, Emma Thompson uh, believes in uh, propriety, Logic, uh, uh, not being guided by her emotions. Uh, Kate Winslet plays sensibility. That's not her real real names, but like she is guided by her emotions. She's incredibly young, she's incredibly passionate, and she is uh, led astray uh, by uh, a very dashing uh, man who wants to be with her. For a while. Uh, And it ends up destroying her. And along the way, they both kind of cross paths. And uh, uh, Emma Thompson realizes that she needs a little bit more emotion in her life. And uh, Kate Winslet realizes that she needs a little bit more sense. Uh, They both end up with wonderful people who are very, very sweet. Uh, This is maybe the most... I think it's the most underappreciated performance in... um, uh, it's Rickman? late Alan Rickman's career right. <laughs> I think Alan Rickman If people remember Alan Rickman from Die Hard Or Robin Hood Or Galaxy Quest Or Harry Potter uh, This is my favorite Alan Rickman I think okay. uh, He's incredibly sweet And very timid Actually He's just a very kind person uh, Who loves with his whole heart But d- doesn't know how to say it um, mm-hmm. 
Hugh Grant has a small role as uh, uh, Emma Thompson's possible love interest, and he's just he, a he, foppish dolt. He's he's the prize. Yeah, because this he's is so, like he's so this is like peak Hugh Grant. He's those, handsome. Yeah, he's he's like, befuddled. Everybody like he's, he was like super sex symbol in 1995. Yeah, he's a and, great role for him. He's so perfectly. At, at the very end, he steps in. And is like, oh no, I was always yours, and and just like, oh good, I I get a prize too. <laughs> yeah, I get Hugh Grant. It's such a it's it's a gorgeous production. Like everything looks beautiful, even though. It's actually for a costume drama. It's not particularly opulent. These are this isn't a very wealthy family, mm. and they don't spend a lot of time with wealthy families. Yeah. Uh, but Ang Lee just has this beautiful sense of the sun drenched England, mm. where there's it's still very connected to the natural world, and I love it. I love everything about it. I love the wit. I love the wonderful, just absolutely spectacular ensemble cast. It's romantic, but it's also thoughtful and wise, and it's it's adult. And it's I, so it's so mature. It's, this, such, it's such a great motion picture. It's it's something I actually I love. It. it makes we, me feel happy thinking about I, watching I think, it again. You mentioned earlier this this weird uh, phase in the nineteen nineties where costume dramas were big business. Yeah, and even among young people, like yeah. it, it wasn't just you know the teens are going to see the big special effects bonanza. This movie made one hundred and thirty five million dollars. In the mid-90s. <laughs> Only a couple of movies a yeah. year made that much money in the mid-90s. It was a huge, huge hit. A lot yeah. of young people would go to see movies like this. I think I think Titanic is the exemplar of that. Yeah. Titanic's a big historical drama. It's a, it's it's a romance. romance. It's, it's, it's a romantic a, it's story. It's a very sappy romance. I love with, it, but it's very it's, sappy. It has... Um, I'll just say it, like, maybe, like, top three films in terms of special effects. Oh, it's... Like, it's of all time. absolutely yeah, impeccable. It's, you are there. Yeah. You're yeah. there. It's incredible. It's like, oh, yeah. there's not, and I feel, you know, say what you will, I feel that same way about Avatar. I think Avatar did, like, hit its special effects, but it's, like, fantasy effects, so it, mm. it doesn't feel like you are there in quite the same way. I, I feel like I'm in New Zealand and they added CGI characters. <laughs> I just, I, that's how I feel all the time when I watch Avatar. Like, yeah, I've, I've seen New Zealand in, in Lord of the Rings. They didn't have to pretend it's now there's a planet. Now there's floating islands. And cool, tree, I guess. I don't and, know. Yeah. I, I don't like Avatar, but I, 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 again, I've, I've I had to sort of come around on Avatar a little bit. I'm I'm not. It's not one of my favorites, but I'm on its side. I'll say that. I appreciate I it like, as a spectacle. I the, think it falls apart on every but this, level. Th- this is the 1990s when you could have this another Kate Winslet film, this yeah. gigantic romance film, be one of the biggest of all time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I don't think we could ever have that again. I hope we can. I, again, great. trends will have to change, but we'll have to wait yeah. for them to change. Give give it time. So there's always room for. Mm-hmm. Sentiment, I think. Yeah. People will always fall for it. Um, anyway, Sense Sensibility, number five. What's your number yeah, four? Uh, let's see. I don't have any romances on my list. Really? Interesting. I um, have, actually have a few. I do have a good film about uh, a rather sad friendship. Yay! Uh, and, and it's, and it's, <laughs> what a delight that sounds like. And it's of mice and men. Um, okay, so that's one where I didn't consider it because the novel was pretty contemporary when the yeah, movie came out. Yeah, yeah. But I, what I an amazing motion picture. I didn't hold that off. And I, I am talking yeah. not about the 90s film, but no. the 1939 film adaptation. We recently watched this is, for yeah. the Only the Best podcast. I think we were both absolutely awestruck mm. by how potent this adaptation yeah, is. It's amazing. Uh, because this came out in 1939, and... Uh, of Mice and Men had, uh, was just published in 1930, or I guess it was based on the play, which was based on the novel. But uh, yeah, it, it counts. Te- Who technically, cares? It counts. but yeah, like they without the book, the they wouldn't. This wouldn't be here. Then yeah. the, the screenplay was based more on the stage version. Yeah. But um, but it's not like Dracula, where it feels like it's dramatically restaged. Yeah, you it's, know? it's not 
super different. But yeah. um, Burgess Meredith and uh, and Lon Chaney Jr. played the two main characters. Um, also, Steinbeck wrote the play, so... Yeah. Uh, and Steinbeck was uh, really interested in confronting uh, the realities of Depression-era life. Yeah. And how, uh, how difficult it was to make ends meet. And this is about how uh, showing any sign of growth or success or hope is one of the deadliest things you can do. Yeah. And this is about... Put this big old target on your back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Burgess Meredith is, you know, he and his friend Lenny, played by Lonchini Jr., who uh, is, is uh, I think they explained that he's brain damaged. So, yeah, he like, got he kept, was in he an got, accident. He's in an accident, yeah. Yeah, and his, his brain was damaged. So he he's, uh, has, has, sort of thinks like a, like a child. And yeah. uh, he's very enamored of soft things. He likes to pet them. Like rabbits and, and you know, dogs and cats. Ra- and, yeah. but, but he's also a huge guy and can hurt people without thinking He has no it. sense of his own strength. Yeah. And so it's pretty dangerous, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Lon Chaney is great. I think he's really Bur- good in this. I think Burgess Meredith gives one of the best performances of car- of his career. They're both great. Burgess uh, Meredith is uncanny, but yeah, I got to say, I've seen so many Lon Chaney films where he's fine. Mm-hmm. I even think he's not amazing in The Wolfman. I like him in The Wolfman. I think I he think gets a certain. There's a sadness that he uh, captures, but I don't think there's a lot of nuance there. I, he's I think he's really but, good in this yeah, movie. Uh, Lyle, Lyle Talbot, the Wolfman. Yeah. I, I think he gets under... He gets to know Lyle Talbot like in some of the lesser sequels. Yeah, he like, gets to really live the The movies role, aren't yeah. as good, but he's better in them. I, I think that's fair, yeah. but like, yeah. But I feel um, like he's often underappreciated as an actor because he often got really bad roles, but he's great in this movie. Yeah, he's, he's really... Like, he just got it. And, yeah. and this film... Camped, it's, it's an incredibly emotional movie. Uh, it just breaks your heart, uh, mm-hmm. and especially if you know the story of Mice and Men, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things don't turn out well uh, for, mm-hmm. for Burgess Meredith or for Lon Chaney Jr. I love about the, one of the things I love about this movie, especially compared to Grapes of Wrath, which had come out like a year later mm-hmm. and it covered similar material and is also based on a novel, is um, of Mice and Men as a movie, because, you know, a lot of uh, uh, Hollywood studios would shy away from this because it's a very racist time, but it doesn't ignore that people of color were having these experiences too. Yeah, there's there's a really great a, a, scene. A black yeah. character in yeah. this movie and uh he gets to confront a white character about how we're all down here, but there's still racism down here. Yeah. We're, yeah, you still have it better com- than we're me. All, we're all completely impoverished. Yeah. We're all totally flat broke, and yet somehow you consider yourself better than me. There's still racism. Yeah. This is not okay. Yeah, and that's and, something that other stories that yeah. tell contemporaneous tales of the, the Great Depression in Hollywood, like the golden age of Hollywood, often completely overlooked yeah, or I, didn't bother considering or, it all. Or, and, or when they tried to tell yeah. stories of race, they were incredibly mawkish and sentimental. Yeah. Think of like Imitation of Life. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, yo, or but, I'd rather not, but yeah. Uh, like like yeah. Imitation of Life was trying to be very meaningful, but just mm. was not getting anything right. No. It, it, it feels especially ignorant today. Yeah. Uh, of Mice and Men actually does have... a pretty salient moment at the very least mm-hmm. oh it's great uh, yeah it's great th- th- this 1939 version is just really really great and uh, i actually like this version better than the grapes of wrath movie that came out i think the following year yeah right around uh, there yeah, yeah. i um, agree i'm with you another steinbeck yeah. book about poverty and the depression it's a striking and, film but it's uh, it's just it feels like what would now be called like poverty porn where you're a, a watching li- the, you're watching bit, the filmmakers basically yeah. like look at how sad they are it, and I'm like, yeah, I get it, but I feel like Of Mice and Men is more nuanced. I've, I've read Of Mice and Men, and I think mm-hmm. the, the book does a better job, because, you know, I mean, it's a book. You get to sort of spend a lot more sure. time there. Of Mice and Men is a much slimmer volume. In fact, it's considered a novella. Yep. And uh, 
And I think the movie and focusing on sort of the intimate experience of these two people is much more effectively communicating what people are suffering through. Yeah. Uh, rather than giving a broad portrait of poverty and immigration. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, really love that particular version. I'm, the 39 I'm, version of F. Mice and Men. I'm with you, and if it wasn't for my very specific criteria, it totally would have made my list. Okay. I'm glad you put it on there, because it's, it's brilliant. Um, and and uh, while we're on uh, the subject of stories of uh, friendship mm-hmm. and stories of love, uh, love and friendship. <laughs> Might as well put two Jane Austen adaptations oh, online. Oh, bless you. Oh, gosh, I, I, lo- lo- I love this movie. Love and Friendship is a Jane Austen adaptation from Wit Stillman, uh, a filmmaker who uh, is perhaps best known for his doomed bourgeoisie and love mm. uh, trilogy, which included... Specifically the- uh, people who are uh, like... 30 in like the mid 80s yeah uh his uh, film is metropolitan barcelona and last days of disco Mm -hmm. uh all depicted uh, a group of uh highly educated uh white uh uh, upper class individuals who had no idea how stupid they were they were very well educated and they had no idea how oblivious and and ignorant they were they they had absolutely no life experience yeah and every time they made some sort of important decision they could rationalize it Without understanding that they were making really bad decisions. Yeah, and I think that actually uh, that approach, and which he got right more often than not. I also really love his movie Dambles in Distress, by the way. Um, Dambles in Distress is really good. Really great. Greta Gerwig's so wonderful in that movie. Uh, But uh, I think it makes him really apt filmmaker to adapt Jane Austen, who uh, told stories that took place within high society. Places where people uh, thought very highly of themselves and obeyed uh, these very strict uh, uh, rules of social uh, uh, norm. Uh, And yet, all of that really is a facade, and a lot of people are way more foolish than they realize. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of Jane Austen. On a surface level, these are like sweet romances, but her works are mostly social critique. Mm-hmm. That are very witty and wry, and love and friendship is actually based off of. Uh, I can't remember it was uh, just po- was it published posthumously or was it an no, unfinished it, novel? It was. Uh, it, it was an epistolary. I remember that, but it was like it was. Uh, it was what they call juvenilia. It was one of her earlier work. I think she wrote it when she was mm. like seventeen years old. Okay, uh, and um, yeah, it wasn't considered like a complete novel. It's like sort, yeah. of, sort of not considered one of like the main six. Like yeah, she, she wrote the six like novels that everybody it was, knows, and it then was like other ancillary. It was films. written as early as seventeen ninety four, but it wasn't published until the late eighteen hundreds. After she died, I think. yeah, long quite a bit after that. Um, and it's the story of uh, a woman uh, named uh, Lady Susan. She's a widow. Did I say lady. Did I say lazy. Lady Susan. You said Lady Susan. Okay, I just want to make sure I didn't say Lazy, lazy Susan. Su- so <laughs> Her name is Lazy Susan. Yeah, no. Uh, she lady, spins around a lot. Uh, lady Susan is a widow, and uh, she's played really wonderfully by Kate Beckinsale. Mm. And at this point, I mean, I, f- I feel like she's still stuck in a lot of, like, really unfortunate superficial roles. Like, stuff like, you know, Total Recall and Underworld and shit. But, like... She's a really good actor, and I think total, this is easily her best performance. Total, total Recall and uh, and and uh, Underworld were produced by her husband. So, directed uh, by her husband. Directed by her husband. Len right. Wiseman, yeah. And, uh, and fair uh, enough, I'm happy that, I'm glad they're working together, I hope they're having fun, but this is her best I, performance. I actually got to interview Kate Beckinsale about this movie, Ooh. and how she, she was, um, I said, you, you have sort of an odd career, because you were in, like, productions of Chekhov in theater, and you're doing this adaptation of Austin, and then in another role you're firing a machine gun. And she says, well... That is very odd, isn't it? There are some days where I get to dress in a frock, and some days I have to do a lot of sit-ups. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Fair enough. But in any case, uh, this is a story about this woman who is ostracized from polite society. People hate her. Because she's a widow and she is trying to uh, make her way uh, by other means and is actually like openly scheming. The, the, The general consensus is, okay, you married and then your husband died and now you're done. That's it for you. Your your life is over now, and you should fade into the background as quickly as possible and not bother anybody. And she has the audacity to give a shit about her life, mm. and that the movie treats her, at least the other characters do, as this like vile scheming, <laughs> like DC supervillain or something, and. Which, which she doesn't bother to fight. She no. actually is okay being thought of. She, way, she's forced to because she has no options in mm-hmm. society. If she wants to like have a good life for herself, she's forced to scheme. She has no other recourse. And so she's like setting up her daughter with men that she eventually takes for herself. And like it's a, a really damning story about the incredibly limited options for women mm. in society in Jane Austen's era. And it's brilliant. It, mm. it works on both levels. It works as, oh, she's she's really wrecking our shit. She's an agent of chaos. And she's also kind of a hero in a really incredible, wonderful way. And both things can be true simultaneously. And I love it. I think it's a great belief performance from Kate Beckinsale. Uh, what's his name? Tom Bennett. Tom Bennett. <laughs> Holy shit, Tom Bennett. Sir James Martin. Oh. Easily one of the funniest comic relief characters I've ever seen in any movie. There's a whole bit where he discovers the concept of peas. He doesn't know what peas are. <laughs> There's a bunch of little circles <laughs> on the, for the paint. How delightful little green balls. <laughs> Oh my god, he's so fucking funny. Anyway, it's a it's a laugh it's a laugh riot, and mm. unlike Sense and Sensibility, which works as kind of a romance, this is a much more bitter Jane As uh, Jane Austen adaptation. But it's totally warranted, and I think it's very very yeah. fair to the spirit of Jane Austen, and, and, and it's, it's really great. It's weirdly well suited to Whit Stillman. As yeah, well. he's just he, the idea of all these upper class yeah. twits, essentially. Yeah, he, he would unaware of themselves. He'd have been very very well to Jane Austen. He'd have been very ill suited to Pride and Prejudice, with, at, which at its heart does have an air of romance to it. Mm. Uh, Lady Susan did not. No, <laughs> Lady Susan if, is if, very bitter. If if like the entire Bennett family, if you wanted yeah. to see a, produ- uh, a production where they're just all complete idiots, yeah. That you got Whit Stillman. Yeah, exactly. But we don't want to see the Bennett family as idiots. We want them to succeed. No, they're like wonderful. The yeah, they're great. All right, what's your next? Uh, what's your next uh, Again, no, no romances. Uh, I do have a couple war stories. Okay. Um, I'll start with Catch Twenty Two. Oh, uh, uh, you know, I've never seen the whole movie. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah um, well, that's uh, what I saw. Joseph Heller wrote the book Catch Twenty Two. Um, it was about. Um, it's a war book. It was published in 1961, uh, and it was about just sort of it was a war satire. Is about how ridiculous mm. everything is, and uh, the main character Yossarian, uh, in the movie, and the seventies movie is played by uh, um, Alan Arkin. Has he's essentially grown tired of it? He doesn't want to fly any more missions, and the war machine has arranged itself in such a way to keep people trapped in the war machine. Like you have to mm. keep on flying more and more missions. We're gonna add five more missions, and then you can go home. Okay, five more after that, and you can go. Okay, thirty more missions, and then you can go <laughs> home. And he's losing his goddamn mind. He's afraid he's gonna die. He doesn't want to die in combat. Uh, the romance of being a soldier is just squeezed the hell out of this thing. And uh, who better to direct a film version of that than Mike Nichols? 
who yeah. uh, has a really sardonic sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that recent George Clooney adaptation. Her was good. I didn't see that. Yeah. I didn't see that one. But yeah, the, the 1970, the Mike Nichols film from 1970 uh, is, again, it plays like a slapstick farce. I think it mm. makes the book even broader. Yeah. And the book is pretty darn broad as is. I feel like what I, what I saw of it, it really did mm. feel like it was like, um, it was just a really in your face satire. Yeah. Like almost on the mash line of things. Yeah. Where, yeah. yeah and, it's just, and, uh, and some of the, some of the symbolism is really obvious. Um, yeah. Uh, and it has, and the cast is just a who's who of comedians and uh, and actors just who were giant at the time. Because Alan Arkin is the lead, but uh, there's also John Voight and Buck Henry and uh, Charles Grodin. Charles Grodin yeah. is in it. Uh, Orson Welles, uh, yeah, Art Garfunkel, Richard Benjamin, Bob Newhart, Anthony Perkins. They're all just this huge, huge lineup of all these uh, character actors. Uh, Martin Sheen has a little bit in it. Uh, yeah, and Orson Welles shows up in one scene, and he gets to look right at the camera and says, "You're a very weird man, Yossarian." Because <laughs> <laughs> Yossarian, uh, does, he doesn't want to fly anymore, so he's trying to get kicked out of the army. But yeah. it, it's sort of like in Dilbert comics: no matter what you do, they want to go through yeah. the paperwork to fire you. Well, that's the catch. That's so, what Catch yeah. Twenty Two. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and he's so he's trying to essentially prove that he's crazy. But if you try yeah. to, if you don't want to fly anymore. That proves you're sane, but if you're crazy, that proves you're not crazy. So, if, you're, yeah. if you're if you try to leave the army because you're crazy, you must be sane. Yeah. Ergo, it's literally impossible to mm. be drummed out of the army. Yeah, on they, and they call yeah. that catch twenty two. It's a yeah. lose lose situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and in indeed, this book and this movie in, introduced that, that term yeah. to the to the the world. Uh, this makes a big boogie nights. I don't know your record industry lingo. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mike Nichols, however, is sure to make this film uh, also point out the tragedies of war the, and the book as well, where um, the death becomes incredibly real. And pe- and all these characters, all these like yeah. funny, broad, funny, hilarious slapstick characters do end up dying in very tragic ways. Mm. The movie keeps cutting back to a, a scene where it's almost like a dream sequence where Alan Arkin is talking to a guy on, on headphones and they're saying, help the bombardier. He's like, I'm the bombardier. I'm all right. Well, then help him. Who? And he like he turns around and he sees this guy like dying on the floor of the plane. And, and we get to see like a little bit more as the film goes on and on mm-hmm. until we get to see sort of like how that story played out. Uh, there's a scene where somebody was literally whipping a dead horse speaking of obvious imagery but you yeah. know Mike Nichols knows how to handle something like that and yeah. you know, uh, Charles Grodin ends up like committing a really heinous murder near the end of the movie um, so it gets incredibly dark but in in a way that I think is incredibly appropriate and really in the spirit of Joseph Heller yeah uh, I think I might like the movie better than the book in a lot of ways yeah. I think that the movie uh, understands a little bit more of the seriousness whereas the book I think might be a little too playful at times. Um, mm. That's my take. Though. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not like, uh, I know there are a lot of like big catch 22 stands, essentially mm. people just really live by catch 22 and I'm not one of them. I, yeah. I like catch 22. I've read it, but uh, I think yeah. the movie, I think might work a little bit better for me. All right. Well, uh, from your war movie mm. to a, a really wonderful film about trying to prevent a war. Mm. Uh, I'm speaking of Richard Lester's, the three musketeers. 
Oh, <laughs> specifically Richard Lester's. Specifically Richard Lester. There have been a couple of solid adaptations of The Three Musketeers over the years. I'm very fond of the Gene Kelly version. That's a mm-hmm. wonderfully wonderful choreography, as you can imagine, on that. Um, the Disney version is cute. You're talking about the 1993 version. Yeah, the version with Kiefer yeah. Sutherland and Oliver Platt and uh, Chris yeah. O'Donnell. and it, You know what? It's 95 or 90s, around there. Yeah. yeah, that is that is a very likable Young Guns version of the Three Musketeers, but it's not a particularly good movie. I haven't I haven't seen the movie, but I hate it. <laughs> and the only reason I hate it is because of that goddamn song. I know, I know. With, with like with it's it's un, unholy trinity of like one for love. the worst crooners. I hate the I most. Like it's Rod Stewart, Brian Adams, Adams, and Sting. Sting. Oh God! It's like why. Why couldn't they get on a plane together? <laughs> um, anyway, I'm sorry. I that was dark. I Listen, Tim Curry plays the bad guy. That's all you need to know. It's a pretty good movie. Um, but The Three Musketeers from 1973 is the ultimate version of The Three Musketeers, at least that we've had so far. Uh, it has a really spectacular cast. Uh, the Three Musketeers uh, themselves are played by Michael York as D'Artagnan, Oliver Reed as Athos, uh, Frank Finlay as Porthos, and Richard Chamberlain as Aramis. Uh, you've got Charlton Heston as Cardinal Richelieu. You've got <laughs> Faye Dunaway as Milady de Winter. You have Christopher Lee as Count de Rochefort. You got Raquel Welch. You got it's, it's what it's Sybil Danning is in this. Like it's what an incredible cast of wonderful, sexy people. <laughs> uh, the Three Musketeers. If you a lot of people forget what the original story was about, but the original story of Three Musketeers uh, is about uh, uh, these like three dashing drunkard heroes. Uh, who are part of this like de- at- attachment of soldiers who are de- here to protect the the kingdom, and they're being uh, uh, basically phased out mm. by the corrupt cardinal and uh, a young idealistic uh, uh, sword fighter yeah, wants to join that's, them. That's D'Artagnan. Yeah, he's he's the fourth musketeer. He wants to join, and he gets there like right at the la- like the last day where they're not going to be musketeers anymore, and he refuses to to give up. And there's this wonderful bit where he challenges all three of them to a duel at the same time. It's great and fun. Um, but the plot of the Three Musketeers, at least this adaptation of it, uh, is actually really really light and frothy. And what it boils down to is this: the queen is having a torrid affair. And she has given uh, a gift that the king gave her, uh, a, a diamond necklace. To my uh, lady. Yeah, no, no, to, to her lover. Oh, right. So given it to her lover as a token of affection. And right. then uh, what happens is uh, Milady finds out about this and she tells Cardinal Richelieu. And Cardinal Richelieu puts the seed of doubt in the king's ear and says, Aha, yes, your wife is cheating on you. I can tell you, I know how you can prove it. You put you host a big party and you tell her she has to wear her necklace. And if she isn't wearing her necklace, you'll know she's unfaithful. So the three musketeers have to race to England in order to get a necklace so that the queen doesn't have to reveal that she's cheating on the king and start a war over it. But if, if I recall, Milady has the necklace, right? She, she, she manages to steal something. That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That, she, that's she's, why I thought she, yeah. She's all part of it and it's this incredible. Yeah. Wonderful the chase scenes after like, chase scenes, and different musketeers have to stop and fight like five different of, guys in order to save them. And the most vivid scene I remember from the book is when uh, D'Artagnan is getting the necklace from Milady because she's yeah. at like a, a performance. Yeah, and the only way she could give it to him was like by reaching backward through closed curtains. Uh-huh. I only saw her hand, 
But like that moment of like touching her hand was like this elevating moment it, for him. It's a very, very mm. sumptuous and sexy film. Uh, everyone is just having a really glorious time. The sword fights are great. Uh, the sword fights were choreographed by William Hobbs, who did a lot of the best sword fights in history. I uh, also uh, played the bad guy at the end of uh, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just really inventive, wonderfully choreographed, beautiful action sequences, great sense of period detail. Uh, this was shot concurrently with The Four Musketeers, which is the sequel. Mm. Uh, and uh, the sequel is okay. It's where like the heavy drama kicks in, and frankly, Richard that's not Richard Lester's wheelhouse. So it's okay, but the first Three Musketeers from 1973 is just one of the best swashbuckling adventure movies ever produced. Mm -hmm. Like, what else is up there? Like, the original Mark of Zorro and maybe The Princess Bride. Like, those are the two. And and Robin Hood. I guess Robin Hood. Yeah, fine. You, 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 I apologize. You're right. The Adventures of Robin Hood. Those. That's like the 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 quarfecta. Uh, I, I don't know that word. Quatrofecta. Quatrofecta. The quadrilogy of of great swashbucklers. Oh, don't say quadrilogy. I didn't please. go for it originally, but you didn't know what I was talking about. Um, tetrad. Call it a tetrad. It's a tetrad. It's a yeah. wonderful tetrad of, of swashbucklers. But yeah, the Three Musketeers is just a, a hoot, and it doesn't get talked about enough. And please see it. It's so much fun. Uh, I've I've read the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. I've read Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, there's other Dumas. Um, but you've never seen I, this one. I haven't seen the Richard Lester movie. Oh, it's <laughs> really fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'll watch it sometime. It's great. I, I haven't I haven't seen a good uh, uh, Three Musketeers movie. Which ones have you seen? Uh, I saw the Man in the Iron Mask. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> great from, cast, from, not from, a great movie. Uh, also from the '90s. I great cast, yeah. not a great movie. Yeah, yeah uh, like sure. like Jeremy Irons and Gerard Depardieu and John Malkovich that's, and Gabriel Byrne as the Three Musketeers. The Musketeers, that's, yeah. That's a great casting. Holy shit! And they got uh, you know Leonardo DiCaprio when he was still hot shit. And yeah, was to play the King and the Man in the Iron Mask. Yeah, it's 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 not awful, but it's, it's nowhere near as as just wonderfully fanciful as yeah. this is. So I highly recommend this version. Alright, All right, what's well, your next one? Well, from your light, light frothy, uh, swashbuckling adventure, I'm going to drag you back into the trenches of war. <laughs> no! Uh, with uh, Eric Maria remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, and the film uh, version from 1930, which is one of the best movies ever made. Agreed. Uh, and again, it's just a little too contemporary for me at the time, but yes. Okay, um... Uh, yeah, I guess so. Because the the public the book was published in 1929. It's about World War One. Mm-hmm. Only a couple uh, years the later, movie came, the came movie. out in 1930, yeah. and um, it is one of the great anti-war screeds. Uh, it mm. depicts combat as something really horrible, but at the same time, uh, takes down how patriotism is often linked to war. Yeah, uh, and how in order to become a soldier, uh, it has to be sold to the soldiers that what they're doing is noble when really they're just meat to be exploded. And uh, that's the way Al Quiet on the Western Front depicts it. In fact, uh, the film has a really notorious scene where a soldier is trying to flee a, a bombed out battlefield uh, and he starts climbing over a fence. A bomb goes off and then all we see left on the, the fence are his hands. Yeah. Just which the is severed hands re- still clinging onto the fence. Really horrifically violent, even for pre-production code Hollywood. Yeah, that's yeah. that's and, pretty uh, gruesome. And uh, yeah, this one just slams every idea about uh, war being some kind of noble thing. Mm. Uh, War is violent and ugly, and what they tell you about Mm. war is not true. And indeed, the main character starts the film, uh, and and the main character is not really the main character, he's just Mm. sort of like one of many voices. And that's true of the book, too. The main character is a little Mm. bit more of 
somebody we're experiencing much larger things through. Yeah. But uh, he starts off as like a young man and war is declared and his, his teacher in school is talking about how, yes, all of you will become great instruments of German warfare and you will, we will all protect this great nation and prove our glory and you will have wonderful stories mm-hmm. to tell and you will save the world and everything will be great and the entire class is like all jazzed up and they run to enlist there's the amazing bit later on when he finally gets like furloughed for a couple of days and he like goes back home and he sees his teacher giving that same speech mm-hmm. to this class and he comes in and says everything this man tells you is a lie yeah, yeah. it's then, fucking hell they, out uh, there there's a and there's a shot at the beginning that's mirrored right there at the end after yeah. that scene where um we get to see all of the the soldiers going to war and they're all kind of we see their backs as they march away yeah. and uh, occasionally one will look over their shoulder looking back at home for the last time and it's yeah. seen as like this kind of romantic moment yeah and at the end we get a parallel of that same shot with the new generation of soldiers marching out again mm. only this time they superimpose a graveyard over them yeah very i mean it's not subtle, o- but obvious, it's... but incredibly effective imagery. Yeah, that's the thing about this movie. This this is a movie where you know, again, I, I don't know who the fuck came up with the idea that subtlety was inherently a storytelling virtue. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is blunt, but it earns it. Yeah, it never seems like it's taking the easy way out by being forthright and direct and confrontational. Um, it really does feel like we are learning about the horrors of war from people who understand the horrors of war mm. and want to convey them accurately. And there isn't a good side to share. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, okay, but you know, Hey, at least we had roast beef sandwiches on Friday, right? Like, no, there's nothing yeah, like this. There's no good side to this. It's all bad. Did, did you ever read, um, uh, mm. Sol- Solzhenitsyn's one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich? No. About the, the gulags. No. It's, it's just a, a day in the life of a gulag. And the upside is he got two dinners that day. It's just a day in the life. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's just a horrible, dull life of suffering in these Russian gulags. Yeah. Um, but there's, like, little bits of positivity here and there. Yeah. Like, he was able to negotiate something where he got to a little more to eat that day. Yeah. It wasn't, like, a hope or redemption. It's just something happened that was positive one day yeah. in the life of this man who's in a gulag. Yeah. That's not quite um, the way front. No, there's no, there's no release. <laughs> no. There's no relief. There, the yeah. things that are presented as things that can be relief, like uh, you might be out in the countryside, you might meet a lady, or you get some food here and there. All of that is tainted. Yeah. Because all of it's been corrupted by A, war, and B, how paltry it all is. Yeah, These the, are not positive experiences. The close relationships you have to people yeah. that might make those time, that time in the trenches and the foxholes seem worth it, they will die at any second. Like yeah. literally any second. Yeah. And they will be gone, and it will mean and, nothing. And if they survive, they're so uh, jaded and and traumatized by the war uh-huh. that they're not there to present warmth. They're yeah. they're just surviving now, just like you are. It's, There's the the idea that there is camaraderie among soldiers. Even that concept yeah. is is attacked in all quiet on the Western Front. The the idea that war is in any way a noble or uh, mm. heroic ideal mm. is. Endlessly fascinating to me because there's yeah. no evidence to support it. Yeah. None. Everyone who's ever been to war will tell you that. Um, it's it's just incredible how consistent mm. these types of tales are. And yeah, I think All Quiet on the Western Front is the ultimate example of it. I really um, All Quiet on the Western Front was directed by a guy named Lewis Milestone, who's not a household name and perhaps should be. He also directed Of Mice and Men, yeah. the, the version that I was just talking about. Very, he also did very uh, the 1931 version The Front Page, which is a movie. I like that movie better than Gal's Gal Friday, which was a remake I, of that movie. I can see that. It's a very um, good movie. 
uh, he did uh, an Arabian Nights film in the 1920s, which uh, I have seen and like. He did the original Ocean's Eleven. So he actually <laughs> has some humor in him as well. Uh, um, yeah, he, he's a, a, a prolific and incredibly talented director. He's done two of my favorite literary adaptations. Mm. So this is, I think, a director we need to start uh, familiarizing ourselves with. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, uh, my uh, my next film uh, actually does take place in a time of war, but it doesn't take place uh, on the battlefront. Mm. Uh, it actually takes place uh, back at home, uh, and it is one of the most uh, human, sweet, romantic, earnest stories I've ever read, and it has led to uh, a great adaptation. I am, of course, speaking of Little Women. Uh, which Little Women? All of them! <laughs> I'm, I'm actually dead serious. This is a tie. This is a tie between uh, the uh, 1933 adaptation of Little Women, uh, directed by George Cukor and starring Catherine Hepburn and Joan Bennett and Francis D. and Jane Parker. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I have not seen the color, the first colorized version of Little Women uh, with Margaret O'Brien, Elizabeth Taylor, and Janet Leigh. I haven't seen that in years. I have seen that. All right. And I remember liking it, but I haven't seen it recently enough that I can feel 100% confident putting it in this conversation. But I did like it. I grew up with the Gillian Armstrong 1994 version with Winona Ryder and uh, Trini Alvarado and Samantha Mathis and Kirsten Dunst and Claire Dance. That's a stunning adaptation. Mm. And of course, Greta Gerwig's most recent adaptation, 2019, is actually a very transformative adaptation. Uh, the previous ones, they, they adapt the material pretty faithfully. They do a few things differently. Uh, but mostly they just get it, the, the, the story right because the story doesn't need the story isn't broken. Mm. Uh, Greta Gerwig apparently looked at the text and said, "Oh, actually, the story is broken," and fixed it, <laughs> and it works better now. And I don't know how she did that. Well, it's she... really insightful. It's such an incredible adaptation. So I appreciate the original faithful adaptations. Mm. Because they're really, really wonderful. Uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn, probably the best Joe March. She's just flies off the screen and and she's punching you in the process. I don't know how she she manages to do it. Um, I love her whole like romantic relationship in the second half of the story. I actually uh, 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 I think it's a really just striking, strong adaptation. They get every everything more or less right. Um, the '90s version. What a wonderful cast. Just a wonderful cast. Gillian Armstrong just makes mm. the, the whole movie feels like a warm hug. Like, and it's it, just... And I haven't seen that version. It's so, so just <laughs> sweet and airy, and it's it's really just wonderful. And then Greta Gerwig comes along, and she was like, okay, here's here's the issues that she took with the novel. Uh, the after... The, end, the ending is too clean. The ending is too clean, yeah. which she fixed. And... It's half an adaptation or a half a biopic of uh, uh, the May author Alcott, yeah. of author Louisa May Alcott, but it's also somewhat fictionalized in order to be a bit more populist and you know entertaining. Yeah. Uh, so she manages to find a way to have it both ways, mm. and it works. Uh, you you get the mega happy ending, but you also get the actually mega happy ending, which is what really happened. And that's really just fucking bright and wonderful. And by taking the second half of the story and telling it concurrently with the first half, not just telling it in chronological order, 
she fixes one of the biggest problems of the story, which is uh, the first. And this is a story about uh, a group of sisters who are uh, growing up in like war torn late eighteen hundreds. Their father's off in the Civil War, and they're just trying to make everything. Uh, they're just trying to make do. They're trying to get by, and they they don't have a lot of money. They're keeping it together. Um, and it's about their travails and how they're very, very different people and they all grow up. And then a lot later in the story, they're all grown up and they're trying to mm. figure their shit out. They're married or getting married or uh, one of them had this boy that was very much in love with her uh, when she was a child. And then he asked her to marry her and she was like, no, I, <laughs> no, we're, we're bros. <laughs> that's, that's where this is at. And then he's miserable, and he fucks off to Europe and decides to just become a shiftless layabout. And then he ends up running into her little sister, uh, and he ends up marrying her as well. In a storyline which, in every other adaptation, mm. can't help but read as a little creepy. Because he knew her when she was very young. Mm. Uh, and I think the 1930s version gets away with it pretty good, because they handled that whole romance off screen. Okay. So they just come in, it's like, we're not even going to fucking deal with it. We're just going to, it happened, and they're adults now, and it's fine. Mostly they get away with it. Far more common for um, older men to marry teenagers. True, but it is... is, Centuries ago. It is, but based on their relationship, it's odd. And I think Greta Gerwig's adaptation shows that not... It's not that he's settling for her, which is something that's sort of implied in the Gillian Armstrong version. It's that they're actually better together. And the relationship between Florence Pugh and uh, Timothy Chalamet in that version, I think makes Little Women a hundred times better. And it was already one of my favorite books and Mm -hmm. movies. Uh, So I guess I got to give the edge to Greta Gerwig's, but this is at least a three-way tie because I think they're all wonderful adaptations and they're all great and they all have these impeccable casts. And I need to revisit the 40s version see if it belongs in the tie or if it's just pretty good. Uh, but yeah, it, it, what a fucking batting average! <laughs> <laughs> just every time, yeah. they just knock it out of the park. I love Greta Gerwig's version. Yeah, uh, I I love that she comment. She did a criticism of the book while also adapting it, and I think that and faithfully great. too, yeah, and with yeah. and with and with care. Uh, I thought it was really really good, and um, I left it off my list because one of my rules was I have to have read it, and I haven't read Little Women. Oh really? So, oh, that's um, a shame. Yeah, so uh, I I could not talk about Little Women. Fair enough. Um, but I can't talk about my number one uh, on this list. Okay, um, it, it was a tie between, kind of a tie between this and All Quiet on the Western Front, because mm-hmm. uh, I like I love that movie so much, and the book is pretty mm-hmm. good. But this is a, a, a book and a movie that I really really love. It's uh, incredibly well renowned, so it's a little bit of a gimme. But it's it's Har- about how to kill a mockingbird. It's about how to kill a mockingbird. Yeah. Okay, it's called yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Uh, <laughs> I've read To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, actually listened to an audio version of To Kill a Mockingbird read by Sissy Spacek, and that was really fantastic. Um, And uh, the book and the film are both, like, equal... I would say they're equally great. Yeah, they're both Uh, really, really good. Yeah, because the the, the film is a pretty straight adaptation. Uh, From what I understand, Harper Lee was... Like didn't want it to happen, but was okay with the film that came out. Mm-hmm. But I have I'd have to look that up. Yeah, I don't I don't um, know. But you're right. I, I I have read the book and I have seen the movie, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, it's the book. Like they don't fuck with it. Like yeah, it's the, the book. The book came out in nineteen. 19- yeah. uh, this uh, is disqualified by your rules because uh, the book was published in nineteen sixty and the film came out in sixty two. Exactly. Um, but uh, Scout Finch is one of my favorite literary characters. <laughs> Because she is a young person willing to learn 
And it is not about how she has the sort of fall from grace or like the scales fall from her eyes when she sees that she's living in a world of racial iniquity. She's being raised by essentially the greatest dad imaginable. Yeah. Harper Lee invented a dad that, God damn it, no other dad could live up to. <laughs> I want my dad to be like Atticus Finch. Well, it's not going to happen. He's <laughs> a fiction. <laughs> But Atticus Finch is played by Gregory Peck in the movie uh, is, yeah, this sort of like, he he's not like peerlessly noble, but he does read as weirdly perfect in a very real sort of way. Yeah. It's almost frustrating how perfect he is because he actually does have human flaws, but that yeah. in a weird way adds to his perfection. And you get to see him teaching his two children, mm. uh, uh, Scout and um, oh Jem is the brother's name, yeah. uh, Scout and Jem. Uh, how to not just taking care of them or how to like approach problems, but essentially how to be better people. Yeah. How to be moral and, in, a, and, in a very uh, immoral world. Yeah. Like, and they, and for, a, very for a while, it's world. a very nostalgic book about growing up mm-hmm. in this little small town and how to get along with your wacky neighbors. And it's not until I think about halfway through both the book and the movie that we learn what Atticus, Atticus Finch does. And it turns out he's a defense attorney and he is defending a local man from a, a sexual assault rap. He has been yeah. accused of sexual assaults by a local young woman, and he is defending uh, the the said adult um, yeah. assaulter. Um, the said assaulter is a black man, mm-hmm. one of the only in town, and he is clearly uh, the victim of systemic racism that has been uh, permeating through this town for a long time. And Atticus Finch knows that, and he knows that, uh, and, and the accuser knows that, and she is hoping to dis- work in this racist system a way to essentially just kill this guy. Yeah. And, uh, and we get to see a lot of this through scouts eyes, uh, and let her discover that there's still, that there's a decent way through this, uh, but not in a, in a halcyon easy way out sort of way. Like there's not, this isn't a film that says, or a book that says, and this is the cure for racism. It's not, not nearly as naive as that. It's actually confronting a lot of the complexities of that. And what's more, it's just a really awesome courtroom drama after that, <laughs> where you get to see Atticus Finch at work yeah. and he's thinking these things out very carefully and everybody's making their arguments and we get to see the racist dickheads making their case. And, yeah. um, and Harper Lee is very keen on uh, capturing the sense of place and also the systemic racism that she's trying to criticize and take down. Uh, and it's a great movie and, adaptation. And, it's, and, of it's that. A gr- and yeah. yeah, and the movie yeah. just does does it's a great, that, those It's things. a great legal thriller. It's a great coming of age story. It's a great indictment mm-hmm. of the, the time period in which it takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast is impeccable. It's shot really well. Um, oh, right. I actually, I actually only recently. I, I didn't grow up watching this movie. I read the book in high school. And then for the movie just never came up. I only watched it for the first time like ten years ago, right. and I was I was very struck by how fucking great this movie <laughs> yeah, is. It's really really good. It's really really good. I I, I have nothing. I have no objections to it. It said meet my rules, All which right. were yeah. weirdly specific. Um, for my number one. Uh, oh, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry. One last thing. I'm sorry. Before, I before you go my on bad. to your thing, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I just wanted to bring up the the joke in the critic, uh, where um, Jay Sherman's at the Oscars. And they have a, like a dance devoted to critics. So he's on stage and uh, he's supposed to throw open a door and yell, it stinks as that's like his last uh, line. Yeah. 
And uh, when it comes to his line, he can't get the door open. We just sort of hear the doorknob jiggling. So they have to move on with the ceremony. They they have to move on with the ceremony. And then somebody comes out and says, our next presenter won an Oscar for To Kill a Mockingbird. A a moving condemnation of what it's like to live in a climate of racial hatred. And then the door swings open. He says, it stinks. How awkward. That's that's part. I'm glad, of what, I'm glad that was the most that's important part of, part thing. of what that's, I think about when I, when I think okay. of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Anyway, All right, um, well, my number one, and I really I was really torn with this one because a part of me like for a bit it was Little Women with a Bullet, and then mm. I realized that we I, I figured we both do this because this is just you know we were raised where we were raised. Uh, our picks for the best works of classic literature are almost exclusively in the Western canon. Mm. Uh, that's what we were raised reading. Those were what was most available to us. Uh, that's what we saw the most adaptations of. Uh, but it occurred to me that arguably one of the greatest movies ever made is based on an incredible short story. And I don't think we really talk about it in those terms enough. And I think this is a movie that is A, brilliant, and B, uh, introduced a storytelling technique that would become so universally understood that it becomes kind of like one of the the lodestones of cinematic history. I think if you remove it, the way we tell stories Mm. might change a bit. Um, Alien. It's Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Rashomon. Again, I haven't read Rashomon. I I have. It's a short story. It's actually really short. Uh, Well, actually, although to be fair... Uh, Rashomon is a is a short is an adaptation of uh, Ryonosuke Akutagawa's uh, story in a grove. Yes, and in a grove is a story about uh, basically you you only you're reading uh, the uh, transcription of interviews that a policeman has had about a murder, and you're looking you're looking at all the various witnesses and what they saw before the murder, and then you are then it's the policeman's witnesses of. The man who's accused of a murder, the woman who is accused of a murder, the a medium who claims that the spirit of the dead has wants to tell their own story. Everyone's story is different. And it starts out really subtly, like there are distinct differences between the various uh, objective witnesses, little things, numbers are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what it boils down to is this person was murdered, clearly. The three people who were there can't agree on who did it. But That's how complicated it is. They, not only can they, it's not just that they can't agree who did it. Yeah. They all claim to have done it. Yeah. They're all confessing to the murder. Each, yeah. each one of them is confessing to the murder. It, it What's does, going on It here? doesn't make sense. And it really calls to attention just how dramatically different we all view the exact same thing. Hmm. Uh, even Even something as sort of shocking and outlandish as a murder, which you would think a person might want to remember pretty vividly. Yeah. Uh, no, people see it wildly differently and they interpret it wildly differently and they project themselves onto that situation in very different ways. Uh, the story is also based on a, a, another story called Rashomon, which I haven't read. Uh, Rashomon, the original story, is actually the framing device for Rashomon, which is about... Uh, a group of men who are uh, taking shelter underneath uh, um, like a pagoda mm-hmm. and uh, they're talking about the story that the movie tells and trying it's, to figure out the morality it, of it's it. It's the Rashomon Gate. That's yeah, it's the Rashomon Gate. Thank you. Um, the movie gets its name. Yeah, and they're trying to figure out the morality of it. The short story isn't really about that. It's pretty loose. Uh, it's just a framing device. 
the movie is basically perfect. Like, it's really hard to consider, like, a flaw in it because it's kind of inventing this cinematic way of... Like, there's this idea that if someone's telling a story in a movie, that we accept it as a truth. If it's on screen, it's true. We believe it if it's... Yeah. That's a conceit of cinema. And uh, the idea of introducing unreliable truths into that medium is incredibly subversive. And not just... If it was just one, we could handle it. Hmm. One person might not be honest, but the fact that we're revisiting the exact same event from multiple perspectives and they're telling the story in completely different ways. This is a storytelling trope that people still use all the time and they're always copying Rashomon. I've seen it in Batman the Animated Series. I've seen it on various television shows. I've seen it in comic books. This is just one of the great storytelling frameworks. And it can reveal an infinite amount of information about the characters, the world that they live, the values of the author. It's incredible. But the movie itself, it's it's fascinating that it's such a simple story that's being told. It's about a man and woman walking into the woods. They're married. Uh, an asshole samurai confronts them. And at some point, the husband dies. At the end of the story, he's dead. Yeah, at the end of the story, he, he is dead. That's it. It's not like this long, complicated two-hour narrative, and at the end, we're wondering who did it. Like, no, the actual story itself takes place over, like, in, like an hour? <laughs> like, it's a real short and, and, sequence uh, of events. And and, and, uh, and at the end of it, they can't figure out what's going on. There, yeah, there's, there's, there's no solution. There's not, like, a single solution that actually you know, reveals what it, the truth it, is. There will never be a satisfying solution at all to it. And... Damn it, if that ain't life, isn't it? Like, it's something about it that is so... It it makes you question the nature of reality. And indeed, it makes you question literally everything you've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, and it makes you question the idea of objective truth. It makes you question, what is it in the human soul that would make someone want to confess to a murder? Like, three different people want to confess to a murder? What's in it for them? Why would anyone do this? Mm. I don't have a good answer for it. I, and it's something... Surely there's a reason, but why yeah. are they all doing it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like a nightmare. Mm. Like, there's just... There, there, it's, there's a logic to it, but I don't understand that logic, and I never will understand that logic. The illogic of it is the only logic that I understand, is that people view things differently. Mm. You, could, you could pull your hair out. Trying to figure out Rashomon. And yet it's so simple. Isn't it? It's uncanny. It's uncanny <laughs> filmmaking. It's incredible. It's weird and fanciful. The whole bit with the spirit medium is just bizarre. Mm. What a bizarre way to conduct an investigation. But it works. Um, it's incredible. It, it's one of the best films ever made. I mm. highly recommend it. Please see Rashomon. There. Yeah. I, I love it too. Um, yeah. Uh Kurosawa has adopted several uh, wonderful works of literature. He's mm-hmm. done several Shakespearean adaptations, mm-hmm. but like I said, I, I had to excise Shakespeare. Yep, I think it's fair. I, I haven't read the the works that Rashomon is based on, and I don't like his film version of The Idiot. So yeah, I know. you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the only Kurosawa film that uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. I should probably yeah. watch it again, but yeah, when, I did not like his, right. his version of The Idiot, so yeah, I had to leave Kurosawa mm. off my list. All right. Well, uh, let's real fast. Do you have any runners up? Uh, a few. I okay. I also had on my runners up list George Powell's The Time Machine. Nice. Uh, I also love the book. The, I like love the book The Time Machine. 
Uh, there was a really odd, yet somehow uh, pretty faithful uh, film version of Steppenwolf based on the, hmm. the Herman Hesse novel. Interesting. Uh, which, it stars Max, or, yeah, it's Max von Sydow. Um, it, it's very essayic, and there's a lot of like hmm. asides about philosophy, but I, I like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not a great Best Picture winner, but it is an entertaining film. Uh, Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, I, I like the book. It's a handsome production. It's, it's a handsome it's, production. I think it outstays its welcome, yeah. but it is fun. It's yeah, it's a little too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hobbit was also on my list. Yeah. Um, of the Treasure Islands, Muppet Treasure Island is the best movie. <laughs> I love Muppet Treasure Island. You know, fair uh, enough. Uh, it, it's only based on one of the stories in A Thousand and One Nights, but what the hell? The '90s Aladdin film, the animated. That's pretty film, good. Yeah. Uh, is is got, a film I was very fond of when I was younger. It's, it's um, got some unfortunate portrayals, but as, yeah, as the what it gets right, it gets really right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I know it's kind of sticky to mention this as one of your favorite books. I'm very fond of Nabokov's Lolita. Uh, mm-hmm. I say that because there is a, a contingent of people out there who really love it for rather unsavory reasons. Yeah, uh, it's actually just a beautiful uh, book about. He language Nabokov wrote in an afterward saying this is a love story. No, it's not a love story uh, between a, an adult and a 12 year old. This is a love story between me and the English language. He translated his own works from Russian. He loved English and you read Lolita and you can tell because it is the one of like the wordiest, most florid works of literature you'll ever, ever, ever uh, read. Fascinating. It's been uh, adapted into film twice. Uh, Kubrick did a rather unfaithful version, which is odd because Nabokov wrote the screenplay to that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adrian, and Lynn made a version in the late 90s which is far more accurate to the book um, they're both fine film productions if you can stomach the deliberately gross material yeah um, he's he is trying to uh, Nabokov is trying to reveal something really disgusting about misogyny and the way uh, European men and just men adult men in general mm-hmm find it kind of okay to prey sexually on youth yeah. and uh, and how that's actually a, a very vital part of Americana. It actually is very, very... In a bad big, way. In a very bad way. It's, it's a, yeah. a deep criticism of 1950s America uh, yeah. through this kind of sick story. Uh, so I, it, it's, it's a book I very It's much a complex like, work. It's a yeah, complex It's very work. complex. Fair enough. Uh, all right, uh, my runners up. I had, a, I had a long list, but I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, let's see what I got here. Uh, Alfonso Cuarón's *A Little Princess*, absolutely oh, that's, charming. Oh, that's a good movie. Beautifully too. filmed. I haven't seen it recently enough, so I didn't feel like I could have a good conversation about it. But I do highly recommend it. It's excellent. Uh, *The Pit and the Pendulum*, also a great Roger Corman Poe adaptation. Uh, that *Pride and Prejudice* that Joe Wright did is is very good. I just mm. it doesn't quite land entirely all to me. Right. Uh, *Return to Oz*. <laughs> I like more than The Wizard of Oz. I, I know I'm weird. Mm. Uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Handsome production. Very entertaining. I have nothing against it. Right. I think The Hobbit's a better adaptation. Um, Conan the Barbarian. Oh, is, is, was that a book? Yeah. Oh, oh, book. yeah it was the, it was the, all those, Howard. It was pulp, a, those pulp yeah. novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, that was totally based on a book. And, I, and I, I'm sorry, I'm not completely unfamiliar yeah, the, with Conan. The original Conan the Barbarian yeah. is, a very, is a relatively faithful adaptation, at least mm. in the spirit of the books. Um, and it's a great movie. Yeah. I think it's a great film. Uh, let's seen, see. I saw Conan the Destroyer a couple times as a kid, um, and I saw Conan the Barbarian yeah. once as an adult, and yeah. apart from that, Conan's not really Fair. big in my mind. Uh, the Iron Giant, based on the book The Iron Man, uh, is a really, really mm-hmm. damn near perfect family film. It's really, really great. Uh, the 2003 Peter Pan is pure magic. 
the Muppet Christmas Carol is the best Christmas Carol. I stand by that. Uh, <laughs> I should have kept going. I know. Just more, more Muppet, Muppet Dracula was right there. M- more uh, Muppet literary adaptations. Uh, the, I, I mentioned that I didn't want to include uh, adaptations that uh, screwed up the material too much, changed the setting, changed the mm. whatever. But that being said, Clueless is just that good. <laughs> Clueless so I is felt, a good film. I feel like at least there's an honorable mention. Uh, there Will Be Blood is excellent. Uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are excellent. Island of Lost Souls is excellent. We already talked about all these. Uh, I like Bram Stoker's Dracula more than you. I think it gets the mm. Grand Guignol uh, horror of the material better than the 1930s version, although no one can beat Lugosi. Uh, the 1943 Jane Eyre with Orson Welles is great. Oh, I haven't seen that version of Jane Eyre. That's my Eyre, favorite right? Jane Eyre. It's excellent. Please see that version. It's great. Uh, and um, is that all I have? Yeah, I guess I, I guess that was my list. Um, oh, and uh, the Disney Sleeping Beauty. Oh, okay. one a lot. Yeah. yeah, Disney Sleeping Beauty. The animated Sleeping Beauty is uh, really gorgeous. I love its uh, trio yeah. of feminist heroes. It, it's really wonderful. Well, and I love the just that sort of bold Disney 1950s animation design. Well, I mean, like, the, uh, the Sleeping Beauty was actually flying in the face of the Disney house style. It's yeah, a very, yeah, very distinctive motion picture. It's such a brilliant motion. I love it. It's one of the... I haven't seen a lot of, like, the Disney animated canon. Oh, yeah? That's one of the ones I have seen numerous times. Yeah. And I, I do like that. It's one, one of my all-time favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so that is it for the Iron List this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back... Well, this, this episode's a few days late, but we'll be back later in July with another competitive best of list as chosen by our patrons over patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And this month, your options are as follows. Uh, The best vacation movies, not National Lampoon. That's too short a list. Just movies about vacations, good or bad. Here's a list of all the, we just rank the vacation films. Uh, The best romantic comedies, which I'm actually a little surprised we haven't done yet, Uh, Mm. but it's a great topic. Uh, The best Italian horror movies. The best medieval movies, movies with a medieval setting, mm-hmm. regardless of genre, uh, and um, because it's a series that we will continue until we are done with it, uh, the best movies that begin with the letter D, because we've done A, B, and C so far. Uh, so uh, within a day or two, that poll will be up on our Patreon. Once again, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, and uh, we will do whichever list you vote for. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Especially thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows would be impossible. We're incredibly grateful to you. Uh, and uh, we hope you're enjoying the exclusive shows over at Critically Acclaimed, including all our yesterdays. We're reviewing every single Star Trek, only the best. We're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Holy Batman, reviewing every Batman. We're doing commentary tracks. There's a lot. Uh, don't forget, you can email us, talk to us about anything we discuss on this show. Uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is that email address. We're also at criticallyacclaimed on Twitter. I'm at Lane Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Whitney, what's our P.O. Box if they want to send us something? It's Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. All right, it is late. We are done. We are incredibly grateful to you for your time. We hope you enjoy the movies. That's the list. Okay.